Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody disgusting network. Coming up next is something indescribable, tantalizing, and mind-numbing. Enjoy. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet, 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 yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from Consequence of Sound. My name is Stutter and Randall Colburn, and we are back again with our It coverage, which is unfolding over many episodes. If you didn't hear us last week, we were talking about part two, uh, the week before that, part one. And the week before that, we did sort of a little primer, a little prologue to the whole thing and kind of broke down the history of it all. If you haven't listened to them yet, you should probably go back unless you like listening to podcasts about the middle of a book <laughs> when you haven't really been following the beginning of it. So, um, But that's the weird structure that we're doing on this, and uh, I'm, I'm proud of it. Joining us yet again... We have Mackenzie. Hey, Stax Gerber. Hi. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be on this episode, and um, hopefully you all know me. And if you don't, get to know me. Well, if you don't know Mac, you can go back and listen to the first two episodes because he's on those. We have uh, some newbies, though, on this episode to our IT coverage. One of them is sitting right next to me, and what is his name? Well, you know, people that would pick up a big podcast recording right in the middle should go to Juniper Hill. My name is Justin Juniper Hill Gerber. <laughs> Uh, I feel like it's been a long time since I've been on the pod. I was not on the first couple eps for for it, but I am grateful to be back. Uh, thanks to the aid of a Doberman clown that got me out of <laughs> Juniper Hill. So thanks a lot, Doberman clown. <laughs> the, well, this would make you Bowers rather than Juniper Hill. I've been compared to Henry Bowers by a psychologist. Uh oh. And then who is sitting next to Mackenzie? This would be Aisha. I wear pants now when I walk up staircases. Jackson, <laughs> thanks to this book. <laughs> Uh, it's good to have Aisha back. You last time you were on was our thinner episode, yeah, I believe. It's been a minute. Yeah, it's good to have you back. We we are happy to have you on our it coverage. Uh, we wanted to get as many losers as possible on these because big book need a big big yep. crew of people to break this thing down because <laughs> there's a lot. So before we hop into the episode, I'm very curious. Uh, Justo, this is your first time on the it cast. Mm. How did you first encounter Stephen King's it? The year was 1991. Ah. It, the miniseries, had been out for a full year, but the next summer, ABC re-aired it. And so we were, Mac, you were there. We, we were visiting our grand, my grandparents in Abbeville, right. South Carolina. And God bless our parents who didn't let us watch a lot of R-rated material, but because I guess this was a TV movie. <laughs> uh, sure, you can watch It on uh-huh. ABC in, in the guest room. And I, I mean, talk about like a moment. Like, that stuck with me. I think as a, as a kid around the ages of the young losers... Mm-hmm incredibly effective and i and the thing is like i knew who tim curry was so i think for me it speaks a lot to his performance too because i was still terrified by him anyway but go ahead mac no i was just gonna say yeah it was terrifying i remember walking in and out of the room and then also 
even if you knew who Tim Curry was, he always played scary people. Up to, you know what I mean? Like, so it was <laughs> yeah. frightening. It was, no, because because I also knew him from like Clue and the Worst Witch the worst and all that witch. stuff. You know what I mean? Oh, so, we, oh we're gonna post we're gonna do that a Worst video. Witch podcast, I think, in the future. Uh, a witch cast. Can we do a Clue and the Worst Witch? Uh, podcast? I could talk about the Clue and Worst <laughs> Witch Wait, all day. Did you read the book right after that? No, it was uh, it was a I, like I said, I I um I, I watched the movie countless times. We would rent it when it finally came yeah. on video. I did not read the book until about four or five years later. Okay. Cool. So it's 15, 16. So what I always love about reading these books after I'm so well-versed with the movies is it always feels like I'm like, quote, unquote, watching a director's cut. You yeah. Because there's yeah. so much more that obviously happens in this book than happens in the miniseries. But I think that's another reason why I think I've got much more of a fondness for the miniseries is because of when I saw it and the fact that I did read it before reading what it was based on. Yeah. But I, I've... Uh, but yeah, I've read I've read the book itself, I think, twice. I read it when I was, I think, 15, 16, and I read it again in my early to mid twenties. Cause I was going I actually have the same copy I have uh from twenty years ago, as a matter of fact. Nice. So, yeah. Love it. Aisha, how about you? Uh so let's see. When the miniseries came out, I was like five. So mm-hmm. I was still a little too young to watch it, but I was seven when I <laughs> did actually see it. And it was it's funny is so when we were living in Hazelcrest, my parents we had like two TVs in the house, one mm-hmm. in the main living room and one in my parents' room. And I remember I didn't want to watch whatever they were doing, so I was upstairs in my parents' room by myself and I was, and it was on happened to be on like TBS or USA or something like that. Mm. And I was like, yes, I've been wanting to see it because this the book that I've actually been reading for this is the first edition from Viking Process. Okay. Um, so it's the black cover book, like my dad's edition. It even has his name like wow. pasted on the inside. Oh, nice. like, is there a date or anything on there? Uh, no, he doesn't have a date for his name posted in, but he like he's already been asking me for this book back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've had it for quite some time now. But I remember watching it by myself at seven years oh, old Jesus. and like I fell asleep after it went off and I like had a nightmare and I'm screaming and my mom came in and found me. I didn't tell her I watched it because she would have been like banned me from everything. <laughs> yeah. But I got in so much trouble because I told her I was watching some other scary movie. Mm. But it stuck with me. And like you said, I have, Justin, I have a fondness for this movie, for the miniseries, because I like... Did not know half the stuff that was going on in here. And I tried to read it once when I was young because my dad always had it on a shelf and I couldn't get through it. So I just kind of put it away and just never just kept the miniseries as my only frame of reference. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you guys, were when I started doing the podcast with you guys, I was like, well, let me try to read this. It was still kind of on the et- et- fence about it i kind of put it away and then you guys were like let's do the podcast and i was like well i'm gonna try to read this now <laughs> so that's kind of my first introduction and like some spoilers my dad kind of told me what happened um and i won't yeah <laughs> anyway and i was like that is totally different from what i saw thank god oh, yeah. they did not put that on thank god you weren't seven years old watching what we're talking about i'd be a totally different person probably yeah. <laughs> so right. yeah that's my introduction cool cool well, let's uh, let's dive in. Today, we are talking about part three, The Grown-Ups. Is that what it's called, Grown-Ups? Mm. I think it's just straight up called Grown-Ups. grown-ups. Yeah. The Grown-Ups. Well, we're going to go with The Grown-Ups now. <laughs> uh, the Grown-Ups 2, starring Adam Sandler. Oh, Christopher Rock. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here to talk about that. And then also the third interlude about the, uh, the crime gang, mm-hmm. which is a very interesting section. I'm excited to talk about it. We're going to break that stuff down today. We're going to begin... Uh, as we begin beginning on these episodes with a section we call Heroes and Villains. I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. 
Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! If you are interested in sort of the history, the hook, the structure and format of this book, that was something we kind of touched on in the earlier episodes. Now that we're settled in and we're just grinding straight away, we're going to talk about some characters. So let's begin at the beginning of this section with Chapter 10, The Reunion, which focuses on which character, Mac? Bill Dimbro. Bill takes a cab. And what do we learn about Bill in this chapter? Where is he at as an adult? As an adult, well, I mean, at this point, he's starting to regress a little bit. He's yeah. st- his stutter is coming back full force ever since landing in good old Derry, Maine. Derry, Maine. So he, in this chapter, he hops into a cab. He meets a very uh, lovely man. <laughs> the cabbie. I love him. He's very charming. Well, also a little bit scary. You, you disagree, Mac? I don't know. I think cabbies are a little scary, right? All cabbies? <laughs> well, dairy cabbies. Okay. Yeah. I guess like what's really interesting in this chapter is uh, the whole idea that dairy has continued to... I guess like I always will always think of dairy timelessly as sort of this small little town. But what I kind of love about that cab ride and what's so important about it is that the town has, you know, kind of become a very commercial place. All the old places are torn down. Lots of chains. Lots of banks. Everything's sprouting up. They're going to a Chinese restaurant to meet everyone. Uh, what I like about this also is from the the, the the outsider, things that look to be progressing in Derry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas, obviously, as we know, evil permeates. Still lurks. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, yeah, so Bill is on his way. He finds out that every Mike is gathering everyone at a Chinese restaurant to basically fill them in on what's been happening. So this is the fir- chapter where we get kind of the first glimpse. Um, everyone sees each other for the first time. And we kind of go through Bill's eyes. Bill comes in and he sees the whole gang there. And um, how does he react to it? He, for a split second, he sees everybody as kids, Yeah, Mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting because I always thought, what if I ran into, now it's kind of hard to do that now with Facebook and things, you you want to see what someone looks like, now you jump on there. Nostalgia's dead. But running into someone that you haven't seen in 20, 30 years, it's got to be jarring. It's kind of creepy. I mean, as someone who like went away for 10 years from Chicago and then had to come back and like met with friends and people that I haven't seen since I was a kid, Mm -hmm. even just seeing them every time. It's like you see the same parts of you kind of come out from that that period of time, but Mm. at the same time, it's like how do you juxtapose this childlike character that you created and that they created with who they are now? And, like, it's hard to kind of put those two images together, which I kind of think is kind of cool when you see when Bill talks and sees them and like interacts and like I won't get into it now, but even when he talks about Richie yeah. and how he's like after a while he's like I still see the same Richie there. He just has this facade of an older person trying to like figure his shit out too. Yeah, yeah I, oh, I can sorry. agree. I mean, I I have friends who you know Mac knows some of my, my closest friends, and there'll there'll be times where we'll go you know one or two years without seeing them, mm-hmm. but once we see each other. You pick right back, right up, back up most of the time. It's it's pretty incredible how that how that works. What is and that What is that feeling like for you guys? Uh, have you had that happen to you recently, where you haven't seen someone like in an astounding amount of time uh, and running into them again? That to me is like it's something that whenever I go back home to Detroit, uh, like where I live, it's something I I always kind of want to happen. I want like I the thing is my parents moved right after I graduated high school, so. I don't, my parents don't live anywhere near where I went to high school anymore. And 
but then I still kind of live in, in certain areas though. But whenever I go back and I go to bars, like in my parents' neighborhood, I always kind of hope that I'll run into somebody mm-hmm. from a long time ago. Cause I'm just curious to have that experience. Cause living far away from where I grew up, like I'm sure you guys get this too. I never see like anybody that I went to mm-hmm. high school with or anything. And I wonder, I mean, I got Facebook, but it's like different. I kind of just want, I, I always kind of like want that experience of like seeing someone I haven't seen since I was a child. I saw, so this is, probably I want to say like 10 years and I saw Justin and I ran into this woman on the street outside of our job Mm. and I could not make sense of who this person was and they had sunglasses on but they were just like oh is that the Gerber brothers and I could not figure out who it was and then I found out it was my best friend from back home was his mom oh wow she was living here now and but she just looked so different and I mean of course after it clicked I mean she had to say her name to us yeah I just couldn't make out who it was and that was jarring and I think the difference between this and and bumping into someone like that that you really have fallen out of touch with and don't even know what they look like now is that they're all kind of reverting to their younger selves so they're able to connect on that level but I know like when I see like my friend Adam if I see him I think that we would get along and we would like get back on some some sense of of mm-hmm. of, of who we were but what's hard is like you feel really comfortable cuz you're like oh I can just be myself around you but yourself is not who you were back mm-hmm. then so right. you're coming at them with this comfortability of of almost being a total stranger again uh, but then obviously, you know, you start to reconnect. Yeah. I think it's even tougher for Mac and I because our parents moved from our childhood home 15 years ago. Yeah. So it's very rare that we ever go back to Orlando, Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but in the instance, like a couple of years ago for, as a matter of fact, for loser Dan's, um, bachelor party a couple of years ago, we went down to Orlando and it very much felt like, you know, in Back to Future Part 2, when Marty goes back and Biff is, has got the big casino and, like, oh, yeah. the, the, like, all the green was gone. There was just all a bunch of, like, pop-up supermarkets and everything yeah. else. But I did not run into one person there. Yeah. Which Most is really people weird. people I know have moved away anyway coming yeah. back. So, like, that's the other thing that's been really different is that coming back home, there is nothing to reconnect with. But yeah. I also wanted to say, too, like, the, I feel like there's a difference, too, between, like, bumping into someone you haven't seen because, like, it's, it takes you off guard. There is that surprise factor. Mm. But for them, they, like, are consciously knowing that they're coming back. So there's almost that preparation. Yeah. And I wonder how that changes your, I guess, interaction because you have this time to prepare and, like, figure out what you or overthink. Because I think in this situation... I would get like butterflies. Oh yeah, and it doesn't even matter if I like ended things poorly or just things we drifted apart over time. But I would kind of get nervous as opposed to just randomly running into an old friend from like fifteen well, years like, ago. I've like run into people that I was like super close with when I was like in middle school. You know, like this is years ago. But then you meet them as an adult, and like they're kind of assholes sometimes. <laughs> yeah, like, and sometimes I, I almost wonder. I'm like, what if like Eddie showed up and everyone hated him? They're like, wow, Eddie became a giant dick. Yeah. That's, yeah. Out here. That's interesting. I wish that I wish that had happened. Like one of them came back and was kind of like complete. Yeah, what well, they did, and they, but they were like the actual bullies. And like Eddie was actually kind of nice, but they were all the assholes at this point. Yeah. And I was like, Eddie, <laughs> shut up. Get your asp- aspirators. You shut find up. Find out they're all the actual. Get your bullies. placebo and <laughs> shut up. <laughs> I always kind of thought of Richie as a weird kind of bully and it like growing up anyway. So yeah. for me, even now, like when I reread this, um, so 
full disclosure, yeah. this is the first time I read this book, but I, this is the second time I read this chapter again in the summer. So I kind of was like, Richie's a dick. Like, I would not have been friends with him as a kid or I, as um, an adult. <laughs> I know Mike Rothman has taken on the mantle of being Richie Tozier, even though he's absolutely Eddie Kasprick. Um, <laughs> that is so true. I, I, I was blown away by that revelation. But as somebody who absolutely uses humor a lot of the time as a defense mechanism, I do think, especially when they reunite as adults, mm-hmm. he's definitely trying to add, infuse some type of laughter into the horror that they're about to encounter. But like you said, even as kids and as adults, they would use the old beep, beep, Richie, if you're going too far. Yeah, like, yeah. Nah, all right, you're not being fun. Now you're well, being and an they use that yeah. quite a bit. And yeah. So wait, are you, are you Eddie? Yeah. <laughs> no, Lord, no. I don't know who I am. Who are you? Are you Eddie? I'm I'm Ben. Oh, I just listened to Eddie, your episodes. Eddie Eddie is technically Dan. Dan Caffrey. No, that's not right. No, it doesn't doesn't match up. I know. Mike should be Eddie. Apparently, let's, let's interject for a second. Though. Apparently, somebody we had we had listeners do a vote. Maybe three people responded. I guess, and I don't know what happened. <laughs> no, I remember. I remember somebody assigned. <laughs> a, I remember somebody oh. assigned all of us out, and that's. I think at least that's what we're going on. But they, I'm almost ninety nine percent sure they said you were Richie. Well, you know. Mm. So hey, you know, let's, let's, oh, hey, I think it's time to do. A, I think there were some hanging chads. Like there were some hanging chads. <laughs> I think a revote. I think ago. a revote is definitely necessary. But wait, who, who, who do you most? Uh, who do you think that? Who do you think most embodies you? For me. Yeah. Oh God. That is because I was listening to you guys talk about that before when I was listening to the, uh, the first few podcasts, and I was like, I don't know who I kind of like most associate with because Bill, I was never like the leader mm-hmm. as the kid. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I could have taken that position, but I just never wanted to. And then Eddie was, yeah, I could not be Eddie. That yeah, just <laughs> has nothing to do with me. And like Beverly just was the. Bev was the only girl, so I was like, why do I have to be the only girl? And then Mike's the only black person, and I'm like, so do I have to be Bev and oh. Mike combined? Is that my only lot in life? So, um... Well, I, you can think well, on you it. Can yeah. be, we can revisit this question <laughs> yeah, at the yeah, end of the yeah. episode and see if, if maybe our condo uh, illumines that in any way. I believe I was also alluded to as possibly being a Mike Hanlon type as well, though. Mm, I, I think it's because I was, you know, kind of in charge of, like, assigning who's going to do what, this and that, and, like, kind of being the... The beacon yeah. in that respect. I can see that. I can see that. Um, but I'm also outrageously funny and, and problematic. So ah, I guess I would be Richie Tosher. You're just everyone. You're um, every kid. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, too. I guess speaking of Mike, everyone, you know, kind of looks great. Like, uh, I mean, sort of. They kind of describe Bill and Bill is kind of looking like shit when they first well, introduced him. Yeah, I mean, looking bald. like shit means like, you know, he's lost some hair. But he yeah. also has a ponytail while he has he's bald. Like, well, no, I think the ponytail well, was only in the movie, right? Yeah. Oh. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. then right. I'm, mixing, right. I'm mixing. I'm <laughs> mixing. Uh, well, welcome to the spot. I mean, I, as, like, as I somebody who's, I mean, I, I read the, I mean, I watched the movie about a dozen times before I ever read the book, mm. so I, I constantly are Imagine mixing up Richard facts. Thomas. Yeah. yeah, but there's that moment when he sees everybody and he sees and he he sees it's so visceral that they're they are the younger versions of themselves that he actually reaches up to feel his hair because mm-hmm. he thinks it's there. Yeah. And then he, I do and love that. Not, but for know, the like, most yeah. part, aside from like Eddie and Bill, they're all pretty hunky. They're all doing good. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. but there's a, Mike, there's a reason. They say that. I know, and yeah. they say Mike looks like total shit because he stayed in town. And I guess that's one of the big revelations of this section, um, and very relevant to character is that 
the one thing that really binds them all together is that in some ways, none of them, they grew in some ways, but they also didn't in so many other ways. Like we mm. learned that none of them have children mm. and Richie has this whole story about, you know, that he got his tubes tied or whatever, but then the process like didn't take, but even Welcome then, the like, Irish. Didn't <laughs> yeah, it's like, like it's like, uh, it's like basically, um, no babies are coming out of these people and they all went on to be extremely successful in their various careers. As we learn here, obviously Bill's famous writer, uh, Richie is a big radio TV show or radio host. Mm-hmm. I keep in the miniseries, he's a TV host. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or is this a, is a successful stand-up comedian or a late night talk show host? Maybe yeah. anyway, we'll talk about that in a couple yeah. of weeks. And then, uh, and then Eddie is like, has this like amazingly successful limousine, limousine company. Bev has Ugh. her fashion like yeah. that she does. Uh, and then Ben is like the greatest architect in the world, uh, which, you know, I think you're going a little bit farther. Does he need to be the most, like the biggest architect of all time? You know, he's a hunk. I he's also he's, a very smart young man. Isn't he just, he's, isn't he just one of? I'm protecting Ben because that's my character. I think he's grow, I think he's he's an up and coming. He's had a lot of really early hits. I think is what it really is. Early hits. It's the rise okay. of the, the hit, right. hit architecture. Wait. I love I love my my rising architecture stars. Don't you have Architecture Magazine? <laughs> I get it every other week. It's a actually, bi-weekly magazine. I actually do Are they some on the front cover, like, doing some sort of pose that's seductive? I don't know how that works. They're just works. holding blueprints. <laughs> no, I, nude bodies. I literally write. I do freelance work for an architecture magazine, which mm. is just kind of hilarious. Um, and actually, my favorite interviews I get to do that are non-pop culture related are with architects. They're oh. very interesting people, which is why Ben is very interesting as well. In his chapter, which mm. follows up, Ben <laughs> Hanscom gets skinny. We hear about... How he got skinny, which uh, is a story that I've always remembered. It's a story that I feel like even I forgot major sections of this book as I got older. I always remembered Ben's How I Got Skinny story. You know, it's funny. Even even in the miniseries, that that was something that really stuck out to me. Yeah. That's so, the, and they took that from the yeah, yeah. And so when I read this, I was really excited to get to it because I just, I, I just love that whole tale, I guess, or whatever. But, yeah. It's, or the way it's presented. I've got a question, though, because you guys were talking about this last time about how Ben, you thought Ben was like a, an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. They portrayed him th- like that in the miniseries. So I, I always assumed that. And then when I read the book, I was like, he's nothing. Yeah. I don't think I think like, even in the miniseries I liken that to he they were leaving like a, a holiday party right. and he was drunk okay. you know right. and okay. even because I don't think he ever really drinks in the miniseries and it was the same thing here in the books I, I I think you kind of came to a resolution early on that he wasn't an alcoholic well yeah I think but I, I don't a think he's an alcoholic drink? I don't think <laughs> that, I think that he I think that he took the news so understandably like so poorly that he just wanted to get drunk yeah. so he could forget I've as much as possible but there. but be aware enough. To get on that plane and go back. Yeah, I, that's I, what I think. I don't think he's an actual alcoholic. Okay, just not. Well, they're all pounding him here at the Chinese restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, I think Mike and I jokingly just kept going with that he was an alcoholic, but I, I do agree. I think that he got the news and he just went straight to the drink, and that's why even you know the bartender at the time was mm. like, "You're gonna kill yourself." Yeah, it's like he doesn't, you know, like. Yeah, I think we're all like that, so know? dry. And no pun intended. On this podcast, sometimes it's hard to read if we're being sarcastic or <laughs> Yeah, I know, so it's like, I know. Oh, this guy's a real jerk alcoholic. It's like, well, wait a minute, hold on. I guess like more so than any of the other characters, I get such like a melancholic vibe off Ben. Like it just seems like he's kind of sad. Like oh, uh, especially like – and I, I feel like it – the reason maybe I remember the story so well he tells about losing weight is because he sounds like he's having so much fun telling it because he's yeah. with – all of these friends and you get, and I, I almost feel like more than any other character, he's the one that's perhaps most energized by being with everyone again. Well, I think about it, mm-hmm. these are the best friends that they'll ever have. Yeah. And one they forgot. And so when Ben experiences his triumphant moment against his coach, 
during that story, he never shares that he actually shared that triumph with anybody else. Yeah, because yeah. he, he knocks out his coach. Yeah, like yeah. he never mentions that he has any other friends or anything else going on. But that's yeah, an interesting point. Yeah. As a former fat kid, yeah, like that's a pretty like when you are able to discuss that with people and feel comfortable, like with any, I guess, traumatic experience in your life or whatever, especially as a kid, like being fat paddled. Is that mm-hmm. what they were doing to him? And then yeah. like having your coach basically tit grab you, mm. like. How humiliating is that? And then to be able to like be on your own and build yourself up and then it kind of it speaks to his character and why he it became so successful because he was able to do that. Even though he was by himself, he still had that support somewhere deep down mm-hmm. in the recesses of his brains of what happened with him and his friends in Derry. And mm-hmm. I think that is kind of like why they're all successful is that also in the end, they were able to kind of build these successful businesses on their own. But it was never really by themselves. They always had each other, mm-hmm. even if they weren't really aware of it. Yeah. Right. There was always something there. That mm. We'll talk about the turtle later. Ah. Oh, yeah. Teaser. teaser. Turtle, turtle teaser. Love uh, that so, turtle. So let's move on. In the next chapter, Richie gets beeped. Uh, what is going... Or maybe the losers get the scoop. Is it's a different... Next. Yeah, yeah. Is it that one? Losers get the scoop. That's where Mike basically breaks down um, all the very, very dark things that are happening. And Mike, how would we sort of describe adult Mike? You know, it's interesting with this, I forgot how Mike is, Mike forgets like everybody else about Pennywise for the most part back in what, 57, 58 after mm-hmm. the events happened. But it's five years later when his father is discussing what happened um, back at the, uh, what, the, the black spot? Yeah. Yeah. And so you have to think to yourself that he has now lived with the knowledge of Pennywise for 22 years. Yeah. I don't think it's so much a curse, like some type of a fantastic curse as it is just knowing what happened and never being able to shake it. I think that if you did experience something like that as a child and you weren't able to leave town Mm. and you were able to grow up and and get away, that that would haunt you and it would hinder you in some way. Especially because you know it's coming back. Yeah. Because he he knows knows in great detail in all those interludes about every 27 years, something's going to happen. In this chapter too is when he kind of explains to them that uh, the different time uh, differences between all of these events and basically says like every 27 years, um, this... Uh, comes back and he's been anticipating it, you know, mm-hmm. but I think that he didn't want to fully believe it until, you know, a certain amount of murders happened and he's breaking a bunch of them down and man, they are horrific. That one about the, um, we might all have this in the cemetery, but that one about mm-hmm. the woman who like runs upstairs and. Oh, and finds yeah. her little son. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. oh we'll one. talk about that. Yeah. And the, toilet, the that. toilet's like flushing. It's like so fucked uh. up. I love it. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, so Richie gets beefed. We learn a little bit more about Richie. Uh, hey, he's still that same old trash mouth, isn't he? Trash mouth tozer. Um, and I, to the point of annoyance, I think, uh, I find Richie to be. Almost colossally unfunny. Mm. Let me let me liken him to somebody. <laughs> you, you, I listened to the first episode, and I thought you, or I guess it was Mac, Mel, Mike, and Dan, mm-hmm. made really good points about how just because he's a comedian doesn't mean he's necessarily funny. Yeah, mm. and I, I couldn't stop thinking about Jimmy Fallon. Yes, but obviously, like, <laughs> like, the, like he's like the he's like the flip side to that coin of being unfunny. He's not offensive. Jimmy Fallon is far from offensive. Mm. But he's also very, to me, like unfunny. Yeah. And so that's how I kind of, I picture Richie in that vein. Just like, just because you've got all the success in the world, 
doesn't mean that your audience, you know. Well, he's like gregarious to the, like, he's like a TV host, you know, yeah. like, or, a, you know, like, that's the thing is a shock jock radio DJ. That's perfect, yeah. They're not funny in real life, probably. No. I mean, no. maybe they are, but, like, they know how to, like, command the microphone. They know how to get people worked up. They know how to, like, you know, move the conversation along and keep things engaging and interesting. And we see that in his character. But it's, like, just, I find his bits to be. Oh, that, yeah. Those are my misery. I know. Oh. They're my misery. Those are every, I've got notes oh, well, for every yeah. part. Yes. And every part always leaves off with. Uh, Richie's imitations. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. They're so bad. It's really hard. Um, so, but at the same time, though, there is something I think very likable about Richie because, yeah. you know, he sort of, his wall is so transparent that he puts up mm-hmm. and King always sort of, King never does such a good job of, of exposing sort of the tenderness of Richie, the, the, sort of um, dependence that he has on these friends and how much he truly loves these friends. He always like is able to exude that without Richie with Richie still sort of having his jokey wall up. Right. That's a good like, point. Yeah. And I just, I find him to be a very likable character, even if I find his humor to be very unpleasant. You like whenever he's point. just being a real person, I love Richie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you make a good point. Cause at one point uh, I think it's right in the beginning when they're first sitting down talking and Eddie's either Eddie says something or starts coughing. I can't really remember what happens. And Richie goes right into like digging at him. And yeah. then he's like, I don't know what I did. I'm sorry. Like, I'm really yeah. sorry. Yeah. I didn't really mean that. And you see the human side of Richie, which is why I give it to you. Yeah. He's an okay person in that sense. It's just his. <laughs> well, it's just been, re- it's just been reinforced. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, got, I keep looking at my misery section. Like, well, oh, I wonder God. like when King writes some of these characters, cause I mean like, are these all coming from his head or is he like, who is he drawing on for this? Yeah. Like, is there a friend he has that's just like this? You got to think that that's the case, right? Cause it, I was there's wondering a very if it was cut, maybe kind of humor to this and the characters and the, it's so like precise. I feel like it has to have been someone he knew, right? The complication is if this had come out, a little later, I would have maybe thought this, but I know it came out, I guess, what, in 86, I think 86. it was, 85, mm-hmm. but you start writing it years earlier, but you could also say that you could read a little bit of like a, like a Howard Stern type personality mm-hmm. in this too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I don't, I don't, I don't see Howard Stern in this. No. Either, you know? I mean, it might've been Imus or something. Don Imus. <laughs> he shows up to Derry like a cowboy hat. <laughs> I, um, but I think it's interesting too. I love what you brought up, Aisha, about the, uh, like him needling Richie and then backing off. And earlier you mentioned that you thought Richie was kind of a bully, which I kind of agree with because, uh, it, he's sort of like that. You have that friend who always needles you. Mm-hmm. And when you're young, especially you're so sensitive to that, but you also like still love that person. I've had so many friends like that who just like, mm-hmm. and I was always the Eddie. I was like the one who got needled all the time and it drove me crazy. And there is something kind of bullying about that. But I guess like the thing in the end is that it always comes down to like, there's no ill intentions there, but I kind of love that when he's adult, when he's an adult, he backs off and he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. What am I doing? Like mm-hmm. you learn not to do that when you get older. You know what I mean? You and, learn that that's, you know, some people not do. to keep a yeah. Yeah. Some people do. not to keep like, <laughs> myself to the character, but I'll do that all the time. Like, especially on text threads when it's harder to, to show people that you're joking around in a text. Yes. 100% of the time. So there'll be so many times where I'll write something that just reads so abrasive and angry and I have to immediately follow up with laughter or a sword or a hug or like, you know, I'm guilty of that. I'm sure Richie is probably an awful texter. Yes. Yes. Um, Let's move on. Uh, Richie gets beeped and then we move on to... Um, the losers get dessert. Is that correct? Mm. I believe you're right. So in this, but kind of what we didn't get sort of an, a dedicated Eddie chapter here. We didn't get a dedicated Bev chapter here. Uh, but so where, what do we think about them at this point? Like wh- how, what kind of characters are they exuding like in this, uh, meetup here? I think Bev, for example, is very, to me, 
uh, she is maybe the most reserved out of all of mm. them. Like she's yeah, well, she's like kind of putting on the air that her marriage is great and um, everything in her life is great. And, you know, does she really, though? I almost feel like she doesn't either say yes or no to that fact. She kind of just is there. I feel the most that I got from her is that she's very like just nervous. Yeah. Like she's like mm-hmm. she's trying to cover it up, but it's coming off of her. Yeah. She's gasping, she's pale, she's yeah. nervous, she's like the only one when they do the dessert part that's like freaking out the mm-hmm. most. Like almost the stereotypical feminine like hysterics. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's I don't know if that's King trying to like show that she's trying to hold everything in mm-hmm. and pretend like everything is okay, but it's really not coming off that well, way. Well she's also yeah. coming yeah. from the most trauma true, in the true. sense that the rest of them just kind of came she, uh, and they're all reeling from Stan's death, obviously, but uh, she came from her husband trying to kill yeah. her. Because so. they've all found success, but she has the other weight of the fucking monster yeah. Tom Rogan. Yeah. yeah, and I think she's just gotten so good at lying to everyone about mm-hmm. her that it's just a secondhand. This is second nature, I guess. And even you think that she would be honest with these people, but it's also like the first time you're seeing these guys again. Mm. And and then Eddie too. Eddie doesn't really talk about his situation with his wife and right. all that. Yeah. Stuff. You know, what I mean, they they're, they kind of like keep that back. He gets really like offended when they start talking about not having kids too. He's like, oh, not me, and like, what mm-hmm. is that even supposed to mean? And yeah, I was yeah. always so that caught my eye actually with Eddie was like why he was so upset when they started talking about not having kids yeah that's really interesting i forgot about that yeah his relationship with his wife is uh kind of a misery for me in this book but it i think like the nature of it is very interesting the way it's written i don't particularly yeah. enjoy so it's it, a, over the top it's a bit over the top <laughs> but you you mentioned one thing and i i don't know if we've gotten to it yet but but they know about stan's death yeah. in this scene yeah, yeah they yeah. In, in the book in this yeah in this part of the book yeah mike, mike, mike tells, tells bell right up moment. front yeah, yeah okay yeah. okay yeah, so they all know about that's Stan. different in other versions. I just want to make that clear. Yeah, yeah. and they mention at um, the beginning of the dinner, but then he's like, "I'll talk about it more later" or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and I think that they all kind of discuss the whole idea that you know Stan was maybe the most sensitive. I think from a structure standpoint, because I have I'm, I'm almost done with part four in terms of our reading. I think King does a good job here, though, of kind of holding off Bev and Eddie having a lot to say during this section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Eddie gets a lot in part four, and mm-hmm. obviously Bev has maybe the most effective. Uh, moment, yeah, or, par- or section mm-hmm. of this particular part. Oh, agreed. God, um, that it's so good, but Scary. we'll get to that shortly. Um, um, so yeah. I, I think just you know I've read it a couple times. So when you when you reread things, at least for me, I just start picking up on the little things that I definitely mm-hmm. would not have picked up on. You know, that first or second time reading it. Yeah, definitely. And then um, losers get dessert. Uh, not a lot of character here, but a whole lot, a lot of, of scary, scary stuff. Um, fortune cookies doesn't translate as well on film, but uh, I do. I do enjoy. They really this tried section. to. They really tried to. Be honest, faithful with this, but we'll, yeah. that's another. St- <laughs> that's another episode. Some of it works, but so basically, Mike tells them, and this is almost, I think, I don't know. The book is almost structured to a point, like the structure is so evident, like King's sort of idea for the structure that Mike almost sometimes feels like the author, like he almost sometimes yeah. feels like it because he's just like, why don't all of you go and go for a walk by yourself and yes. let Jerry <laughs> speak to you? Yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of literally just like. King, like maybe King, somebody, King going, how do I structure this next thing? And then Tabby like telling him that. And he's like, okay, I'll just have Mike say that. (laughs) I think at the same time, it was kind of like Mike saying, hey, assholes, I've had to live with these memories now for, you know, 20 plus years. (laughs) Your turn. You go out there, experience what I've had to experience every day for decades, you know? You know what's 
else is interesting here is that some of them genuinely think like they're going to get killed. Like mm-hmm. they're just going to yeah. walk into Derry and they're going to die. Well, like, he I, specifically yeah. says stay away from the Barons. Which yeah. I wonder if like it had one of them and like, let me just go to the Barons to yeah. fuck it. And yeah. which, which I always thought was really weird because yeah. the Barons is like where their clubhouse was. And I figured that's where they, they would want to meet. I thought that's where they would want to meet. Not the Chinese restaurant. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I thought that, I mean, maybe that's getting yeah, too far ahead. Maybe they're like, well, let's not hungry. go right to the source Adults of the are more problem hungry than kids. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a soul point where he was asked, like, why didn't they ever go back to the clubhouse? Uh, loser, uh, adults are hungry. Uh, loser hungry. Yeah. <laughs> loser hungry. Um, and then, uh, do we want to keep talking about character uh, chapter-wise? Because do we want to kind of do a rundown of chapter 11 where we go through all the sections? I think that's smart because, I mean, we'll obviously talk about each yeah, character Yeah, we're going to go deeper into it. it yeah. But just to relive yeah. sort of what happens in each of these chapters because, man, a lot happens here. Yeah. And it's really fascinating stuff. And then we'll cap off Heroes and Villains by talking about the three uninvited strangers. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Good idea. Mm-hmm. Some, some troublemakers there. Mm. Uh, chapter 11, walking tours. Uh, we begin with Ben. And where does Ben go? The library. The library. Where I would go. Yeah. yeah. He's got uh, quite the connection. And it's it's actually a very sweet scene that is that is offset by some really, really, like, extreme, gory, gross stuff. Uh, basically, Ben goes to the library. He kind of uh, talks to the person, renews his library card, walks around, gets really nostalgic, looks at the connector between the children's library and the main library, the which inspired his, yeah. gra- his, his greatest uh, feat as an architect to this point. What's your and problem it, with architects? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. I mean, you're, right, you're literally freelance sometimes like for an architecture <laughs> they, magazine. They pay my bills. Um, mm. But and then we also though it's juxtaposed with uh, Pennywise. Uh, kind of just running amok. And the thing is, it's funny because when I was rewatching the miniseries, one, the scene I hate most in the miniseries is when Richie goes to the library mm-hmm. and Pennywise is just like laughing and like the blood balloons and oh, everything yeah, are popping. Everywhere. I just think it's so silly. Like in the way Curry plays it, it's just so over the top and it's not, I'm not a fan. And, uh, but then I, act, I know. <laughs> yeah. Only we're not on the so same page. The I, but I'll say <laughs> that. I'll say that. I, a clown. I thought that that had been just uh, made up for the film. I think that's great acting oh, yeah. if you can't like. Yeah. Because I, yeah. I had forgotten about that. I'll defend. I'll defend it like you. I'll defend the scene, but I do actually think it's better here. I agree because yeah. the way it oh, starts yeah. is so subtle and just out of nowhere. We almost have to reread. But we'll talk. I about had that to go back. Yeah, because the first time Pennywise speaks, I was like, "Wait, what?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so yeah. Pennywise basically takes on a couple different forms, including Dracula, mm-hmm. uh, very mm-hmm. spooky, razor blade teeth, and uh, ah. yeah, and. <laughs> And then um, he basically just kind of um, uh, hassles Ben while kind of, you know, the life is unfolding around him. And I, I f- like, what do we kind of take away from Ben in this scene? Well, I mean, he's obviously waxing nostalgia for a lot of it. He's mm-hmm. comparing the children's library and the adult library. And I was, it's a very, I don't know, King, once again, underrated for this. He, I love the idea of him going and trying to get like a library card. Yeah. yeah. There's something really that sweet about that. That would be something I would do. Yeah. Going back uh, home. Because he could have done that. I don't know. It's just. But if you think about it, it's like it makes so much sense for Ben. Like you watch the movie and you're like, why would Richie go to the library? Like Richie yeah. doesn't really have that connection <laughs> with it. Whereas Ben, though, like Ben spent his, you know, his, he spent many, many days like reading. And he they also spent time as losers. We learn in the next part that they spent a lot of time in the library, like learning how to make, uh, you know, st- the steel Balls. or silver mm-hmm. uh, things. And so. 
it was a very special place for him. And, you know, and I think you never really like I have the same connection with libraries. Like I can still remember the, the you know, the various uh, halls and stacks in the libraries that I used to frequent when I was mm-hmm. a kid because yeah. those were an escape for me. And right. I used to go and check Hiding out books. in the corners yes. and reading for hours. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I literally thing. did that. That in bookstores, like used bookstores especially. Oh, yeah. I just have such a connection and the smells when they come back are very distinct and you always remember them. And so I think that that's what really kind of comes through in this chapter is that affection that he has that even as a, an adult who is extremely successful doing architecture or whatever, it's like there's nothing like, you know, going to that place that made you feel safe as a kid. And I still love libraries. I love libraries so much that I will, um, I go 21st century library and check out books once again for my overdrive via the Amazon Kindle. Oh, boy. Oh, I and actually I love go it. to the library and check out books. Forget it. Because that <laughs> week, if I'm done with the book, it's two o'clock in the morning. I'm like, I'm returning it. I don't have to worry about any late fees. It's going to be taken or it'll be taken away from me in three weeks. I don't have to worry about it. Whereas loser Dan Caffrey, like, is loser Dan Caffrey still library. goes to the library to check out albums. Yes. Yeah. And, and will CDs. upload them to his computer. Somehow he still has the last American laptop that has an actual CD drive in it. <laughs> And I'm, what is he going to do when that's when, the, when those are gone? Because the new computers do not have the CD drive. Oh, I guess he'll put them all on. Like, I guess he can. You can transfer it. Yeah, he's, he's gonna have to go to the old fashioned. Uh, iTunes you. or Spotify or something. There's He's not going to like that. There's a way. I mean, they still have ways so you can do reel-to-reels and albums. Uh, like He will find a way. You're right. Yeah. He, he, Dan Caffrey will find a way. Yeah, yeah. He will find a way. I actually so, wanted to say, though, yeah. too, about the library where because Ben is dealing with also being an adult at, versus being a child in the library. Yeah. Because, I mean, we've all, I don't know if people who still go to the library, like myself, <laughs> when you go back and you're an adult and you're like, you can't, you, you know, I'm used to curling up in a corner and hiding somewhere and reading for hours, whereas an adult, that kind of looks a little strange if I'm like cross-legged in the floor in the back corner. They're like, hey, ma'am, do you need something? But also just him trying to, like, he was in the kids' area and he's listening to the kids' story and he kind of wanted to go over and listen. There was that urge to do that. And yet he couldn't, and the woman came over and asked him if he needed help. Granted, that had to do with the child murders that were going on, but also, <laughs> yeah. like, what are you doing in this child's mm-hmm. children's section? I still kind of like going and perusing kids' books and seeing, like, what they have available. Me too. Me too. Yeah. I remember uh, a couple, maybe, I mean, it's probably last year, I went to a Barnes & Noble downtown Chicago, one of the last remaining Barnes & Nobles, by the way. And I remember, I, I do remember perusing the children's section there and still feeling a little bit like, I was like, I think it was like a, like a hoodie, you know, I was like, like, I'm like the prowl or something. But I was genuinely looking for a gift for my goddaughter at that time. But, you know, it was just, I don't know. Well, you know, it's funny, uh, on page 489, uh, of, I think it's the Scribner edition, the, they mentioned that the mall replaced the Kitchener Ironworks and that there's a Walden Books there. I, yeah. I, I, I loved Walden Books. I loved Walden Books. That was I know, place we went I there, we used to go all the time. Yeah. What was Good. the other one, Dalton? B. Dalton. B. Dalton. B. Dalton. B. Dalton bookseller, yeah. yeah. Not as good as Walden, but also Absolutely good. not. No, no. There's only yeah. one Walden Books. No, it's like a cheap knockoff. <laughs> <laughs> I used to go in there as a child and say, you're no Walden Books, and leave, and then, and then leave and walk to Walden Books. And Mr. Dalton was not happy You're not that. allowed here anymore, He so. chased you out with a broom. <laughs> we don't a, need you. It was actually Timothy B. Dalton, <laughs> one of our great James Bonds. I might actually yeah. go to that one. <laughs> uh, then the next uh, section of this, Eddie makes a catch. So Eddie's a baseball fan. Hey, batter up. Mm. Batter up. He goes to the Tracker Truck Depot uh, where the kids used to play ball. And ooh, some spooky stuff happens. Mm, I don't know if you know this, but that? some 
dead kids show up and yeah. <laughs> wearing Yankee pinstripes. Um, Two different dead kids, I feel like. A couple. I think there's a couple because oh. uh, one of the one of Henry Bauer's old pals shows up, and I think a couple other victims uh, pop yeah. up. This in is the, definitely in the this didn't work for me. This is definitely no. My, I, my I think this is a bit wow. Of a we're, we're actually on the same page here. I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this is of all we'll the, get to of it. all the 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 walking re, uh, tours. Uh, this one uh, wasn't as interesting. And I feel like we just don't learn a ton about Eddie. Like we we kind of yeah. just hear him talk about baseball a lot, and yeah. I guess it's a little bit of nostalgia for when he was young, but I just don't learn a lot about it. I want to talk about that because I've got some notes here, but I feel like this is the only instance of the losers where we don't learn anything about what's about to happen or there's no real good memory that's triggered. For instance, with Ben, there's a memory about how they defeated it when they were kids. Mm. He remembers about creating the silver slugs out of silver dollars in his section. Whereas Eddie is more just like, who is it? It's uh, Belch. Belch is like, Popping over the fence to, to bully him, but there's no real revelation he's going to use from this to, to move forward. Yeah, I maybe feel like that's all he why. Does, I feel like all he does is maybe just remember that Belch and Victor died. Mm. Like he yeah, recalls that, but something. I feel like we already knew that. Yeah, yeah. nothing really to help to help them in the future. You know, wasn't one of the girls he had a crush on? Yeah, people yeah. popped up, which I was. I I guess I didn't. No, she died. So I guess that's yeah, like well, one of the clues. I just assumed like all of the kids died except for the seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone, the class was really empty. He's like, wait a minute, you're not dead. I saw you last well, week. Well, yeah, he tells this whole story about like various baseball players that like were the kings of the field, you know, yeah. along with like Belch was one of them, yeah. but then the other kids were too. And he's just kind of reflecting on it. And it, it's kind of cool in that maybe it just builds out the world a little bit. But like I said, like, you know, we're not, it doesn't feel essential. <laughs> I think there were other buildups of non-major character kids you know much that were much more successful than this one did you have oh sorry go ahead no i was gonna say part of me thinks that king was trying to and maybe not in the best way possible uh show how eddie was still like so removed from being an actual kid because he doesn't have any memories of it really himself he has to talk about other kids doing it because he couldn't do it himself the most he really talked about of him doing it was like running in the field and catching those ball like retrieving those lost balls yeah. which his mother would have lost his mind that's like the only kind of like eddie-ish memory you get from that other than that i feel like it's just eddie trying to relive what being a child's like being a child was like through someone else's memory that's a yeah. good point actually because again like his mother would have been smothering was too smothering mm-hmm. to allow him to ever do a physical activity like baseball just revisiting the chapter this isn't a huge revelation but i guess the one thing that he does remember that he kind of takes away well, like he's closest to the barons out of all of them, like yeah. being in this field, like mm-hmm. he can kind of see them in the distance. And so, and he says like, I spent the happiest times of my childhood down there in that mess, he thought and shivered. And then as he's walking away, um, he sees, uh, let's see, he goes, um, he was about to turn away when something else caught his eye, a cement cylinder with a heavy steel cap on the top, more lock holes, Ben used to call them, laughing with mm-hmm. his mouth, but not quite laughing with his eyes. If you went over to one, it would stand maybe waist high on you if you were a kid. And you would see the words Dairy Department of Public Works stamped in raised metal in a semicircle. And you could hear a humming noise from deep inside, some sort of machinery, Morlock holes. That's where we went in August. In the end, we went into one of Ben's Morlock holes, into the sewers. But after a while, they weren't sewers anymore. They were what? Patrick Hockstetter was down there. Before it took him, Beverly saw him doing something bad. It made her laugh, but she knew it was bad. Something to do with Henry Bowers, wasn't it? So, like, that's, like, the most he sort of yeah. has mm-hmm. the memory. Guess- it kind of teases, it teases something for us as a reader mm-hmm. that we are going to learn about Patrick Hockstetter later on. Yeah. You know? But I guess the memory of the of the Morlock holes and the, and the sewers, because he is the one that, that leads the way in yeah. the sewers and finds his way through. So I don't maybe know. that's, like, his, his yeah. contribution. I, I guess do, I do we love always the, know. I, it's like we've already known that. 
it is in the sewer, so it doesn't feel like a big. But in yeah. terms of Eddie always being the the, the navigator, yeah. yeah, like knowing no, I, how to I, traverse. I agree. The sewers, it just yeah. doesn't feel as. I agree. Important. It's not as. It's, it's not, not as the other big, ones, no. and not, and you have to reach for that. Too. I yeah. do love. I don't know if you discussed this um, in the uh, for the second part, but I love King. He keeps using Morlock holes throughout, and the Morlock yeah. holes are from. H.G. Wells, The Time Machine. Yeah. And so I think the imagery of that is really, really good if you if you are familiar with The Time Machine and the Morlocks. Interesting. Good stuff. Um, Cre- creepy stuff, I should yeah, say. Yeah, they're creepy. Especially that old, the old, the, the uh, what, what, what? I'm only talking about the Guy Pierce 2000. Are you? Those are, oh, no, Jamie, I'm talking Irons about, and, I'm talking about the old, the Rod Steiger, I think, versions. Yeah, that, that's 60s. really good, yeah. yeah. Uh, part three. Bev Rogan pays a call. Your hair is winter fire. January embers. My heart burns. Well, thanks, too. Randall. Where does it burn? Oh, sorry. I it thought burns you at Mrs. Kirsch's house. Let me tell you something about this section. <laughs> Mrs. Kirsch, Mrs. Marsh. <laughs> this is the stuff. I this love it. I can't wait really to talk good. about this. Yeah. This is my cemetery. favorite part. We'll get there. Um, yeah. Do we want to talk? Do well, we, okay, I want to say something about this yeah, part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another revelation takes place. Yeah. Mm. When she screams at it. The grackles know your name. Yeah. So once again, it's that deflection that they're able to kind of use in terms of backing up against your imagination and, and uh, demoralizing the, but I the love, creature. Yeah, I love the idea of that. And that's been used in other things down the line. You're not is, real, is the, essentially. The um, the power of naming something, mm-hmm. too, I think is interesting. Yeah, this is such a good, like, I guess, like, just what you said, like, like you're not real. Like, we see that in, that's such a trope now in, yeah. like, horror oh, movies yeah. and everything. And it's gotten really lame, just that whole idea of, like, you're not real. You can't hurt me and everything. What I love about it is it is it still taps into that idea of, um, you know, I don't know, I guess the power of, like, claiming what is and isn't real and, mm-hmm. and drawing upon your imagination and asserting that. But it does such a great way of getting that sort of message and that idea across while still keeping the threat real. Like, yes. people can say, like, mm-hmm. you're not real, then it, like, dissipates into air. Yeah. Like, it's not like that. But at the same time, what it manifests as is not real. But the creature is actually real. But the the forms it takes that tap into your darkest fears, those are what's not real. And so many other things, the monster's not real. I, no, the monster monster is real but you the way it exploits your fears is not real and yeah. i think that's what's so cool i think it. because she realizes you can use this as a weapon but it will not be a resolution yeah, yeah. It, she doesn't think to herself okay now we can just all go down to the barons together and just say, say you're not real the grackles know your name <laughs> goodbye you know it's not going to be it's <laughs> not going to be that grackles easy grackles anyway yeah. why do they know your name <laughs> grackles by the way are all over austin they're very loud they're and they are horrifying. They're very by big. The way. I yeah. saw them in Poland, and Oof. they are huge. Also, I kept saying the grackles know your name in Poland because I was reading. This <laughs> <laughs> nice. nice. So. They they they're scarier than Pennywise sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think. I find this chapter really revealing. Also, just in that Ben, I mean uh, Bev, still um, even after everything her dad did to her, she still wants to go see him. Like it's such a complicated, dark relationship. Well, I want to talk. I wasn't on that first episode, but they do a really good psychological. I, I think they do a good psychological part on Bev because. She is constantly finding reason to love her father. Mm. Yeah. No matter, even though he, you know, punches her and slaps her and berates her. I think that if you grow up in that household and knowing people who have grown up in that type of a household, that that does stick with you. And you're able to try to normalize that behavior. Mm-hmm. I think that's what happens with Tom Rogan is that she's able to kind of normalize it somehow because he will occasionally say that I love you. And now he's doing this to her, and he she's able to find some type of a reason with it. And I think you lose your sense of self worth along the way too. Yeah. So I'm not surprised that she would go back to to her father's house, even though she got out years ago. Doesn't even know if he's around anymore, mm. but would still be willing to go back to. But to even see him. then, as she was like going back the whole time, she you, the. 
I don't want to say the logical part of her brain, but the part that got away was saying, like, don't go. Or, yeah. like, why are you still here? Run while she was ringing the doorbell. You have time to turn around. Mm. Like, the whole time there was that conflict of, like, I know this is stupid. Why am I doing it? Why am I being drawn here? But then she's also dealing with the fact that Mike is like, just follow your nose, yeah. like to Can Sam type life. So <laughs> and she's probably been grappling with that literally her entire life. That conflict, you know, right? And it's it's. I mean, this to me feels like the cruelest of all the sort of the in the walking tour, like mm-hmm. of all the things that happen to people, just for it to happen in the house that Bev has like so many traumatic memories in and to frame it as such a welcoming place at first, like Mrs. Kirsch being such a well welcoming well, woman. And like, you know, she sort of, I mean, it almost feels like this is what Bev wanted in a way. She didn't want to see her dad, but she also wanted to know what happened to him. Mm. And this nice woman kind of brings her in and has like made her house look lovely again, like made it look beautiful. And then, um, tells her about her dad and everything. And it's like, everything's good until it's not, you know? And it's just so cruel because she's lulled into this, uh, sense of comfort. And I think that that's, you know, obviously, uh, a theme in her life. And for the walkie tours, this is the first time we don't know right away that there's something wrong. Because right. we know, we see, you know, with, with Rich or with Ben in the library, you know it's, it's, it's Pennywise. And obviously the baseball players, it's, you know, Pennywise in some form, you know. But this is the first time it seems like a nice young it's nice disarming. and yeah. It's disarming and you, you really, you don't quite see it coming. I think it's, it's tough because th- they changed this in some of the, the adaptations, but I feel like in the, in the book, a lot of the other kids, I mean, yeah, Eddie has an overbearing mother, but she loves him. And like, I have some ben, hot takes on that in Ben's, the fourth part, though. Well, but Ben's, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm saying right now, this moment. Sure, we, we, we believe it. But Ben, like Ben's um, mother, mother is actually really nice, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like Richie's yeah, parents are hilarious. Yeah, so it's like Bev has has probably has the worst. I'm definitely has the worst. Uh, like home life. So for her coming back, this is. It's, it's, it was always going to be hard for her, like yeah. almost walking through. Mm-hmm. I think because it was just like this whole town is just one big memory of all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like the other guys might have like good instances or something, you know. But pre, like Bill and his family pre Georgie dying, like he has those memories of his family there and mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. But like Bev really doesn't have anything like that. Yeah. Most no. of her good memories are with them. So for her to go on her own was yeah already a recipe for disaster i think in in my opinion and even then i feel like when she walks into the house with uh mrs kirsch the way king describes like the house little by little Mm -hmm. like there's a part where he talks about the rose coloring of the the paint and how it was like what do you say it was too low and pleasant to be gaudy and like Mm. that sentence caught me a little bit because i was like Mm. so it's not quite it's not gaudy yet but there's something off so it was like he's it was almost like as I'm reading this chapter, little things were like slipping in and you're realizing as she just before Bev realizes things are kind of off as it's going and going. And then you're like, oh, and the part where, they, where she's sipping shit, basically. Yeah. 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 Mm. It's so yeah. gross. It's great. We have a, we'll have a lot more on that later, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's beep beep our way over to mm. Richie. We get Richie. What is this? Richie makes, Richie Tozer makes tracks. Well, this is a pretty iconic section because I remember a lot of people were upset it wasn't in the miniseries. And the I remember early um, photos from even it part one where you see the Paul Bunyan statue yeah. and everybody was excited about that. Yeah. Well, 
the photos Everybody. came out from part two that they're oh, filming. Yeah. And people with Paul and really lost their minds when they saw that. Yeah. Well, we had a lot of people saying, "Please take down that photo," but by that point, it had pretty much late. permeated the Sorry, internet. Don't so. post it on a public forum, and we won't post. We won't. Well, post it I think it was. I don't think the people producing the movie published it on a public forum. Well, if if if, <laughs> if the Muschietti's had reached out and said, "Please take this down," we would have taken it down. We actually did get a comment from uh, somebody who. It wasn't. It was like a an, an Instagram account that sounded like it was Andy Muschietti, but it was only had like like sixty followers. Yeah, so and I'm I sorry. wondered. I just wonder if it was like maybe his own personal like that nobody knows about account. Sorry, but, uh, but I didn't know if it was him. It, it wasn't. It was unclear. No. And hmm. so, but by that point though, it was literally everywhere. every website had it. So too late. Anyways, very excited about that scene. Yeah. And uh, excited to talk. I actually have some good stuff on this. I actually really like this chapter yeah. for the most part. I I find this is where, you know, Pennywise gets maybe a little too wisecracking. It gets a little silly near the end. Yeah, which I'm not a fan of yeah. usually in King. But but I do actually, I, I find the idea of, you know, the whole Bunyan thing absolutely terrifying. I like how uh, this is also used. Again, this is he, King does a really good job in this whole section because... Now we're going to actually experience something that he experienced, that Richie experienced as a child before yep. we come back to the present. And once again, that's different from the the previous three walking tours. Yeah, which is re- yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, any kind of juxtaposition, like I feel like Richie's actually got a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, unspoken trauma from his, even though he had a good home life. He what he res- what he also reminisces on here is is all the bullying that he mm. had to deal with because mm-hmm. we don't see it as much. We don't see them come after him as much. In the early parts, we see a little bit of it, but um, here he gets, he kind of recounts another story where Belch and Henry and, and Boogers Caliendo, great character. Great name. Uh, yeah. Yes. Boogers in the last section also was like the one who was telling everybody how to how to have sex, which was very funny. <laughs> I mean, it helped me as a, as a young man. Yeah. And so. Uh, how to. Yes. So, so I feel like this is sort of Richie allowing himself to remember some things that are, you know pretty genuinely traumatic for him. The kind of stuff that he more, probably more than the rest of them was uh, shutting out. Well, something else, I, I think the joke about like why everybody's a quote unquote loser or an outcast was made. And I think that there was a, something about something that was described to Richie as like, Oh, he's just something because he wears glasses. I think it goes beyond that though, mm-hmm. because I think especially when you're a smart ass kid back then or any time in your life mm-hmm. and you're a smart ass kid, I, I viewed him as kind of a nerd. Yeah. You're smart ass, not popular like a yeah. jock or whatever. And that's intimidating popular. to jocks, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like that's an intimidating thing to be. So I think that's why he was such an outcast as as part of the losers. And I feel like that's I feel like I know we're not talking about the movies, but I feel like that's as much as I love Finn Wolfhard in, in the new one, I almost feel like Richie the real Richie was probably more a lot like uh Seth Green in the original. Because yeah. he's so much dweebier. Yeah. You know, whereas like Finn, I could see that kid actually being kind of cool. I could feel I feel like that kid would be like in a cool band called Calpurnia <laughs> that would play at fucking Riot Fest. <laughs> oh boy! All right, well, let's move on. Well, wait before we move on. Yeah, I was going to say, what else do we I got on Richie? Out, yeah, that um, when Richie sees that um, Iron Maiden and Judas Priest are mm. playing uh, on June fourteenth, and I said, "Ooh, what would, what would Iron Maiden set be in nineteen eighty six? Mac, do you have the set list? <laughs> I don't have the set list, but it would be playing Power Slave and Somewhere in Time. And let exciting. me tell you, those are two very good albums. Yeah, exciting <laughs> times. Was that their only two at the time? Uh, no, no they, but they but that time. was like right around the time those albums were coming out. And I just wanted to reiterate that, um, along with the Al Pacino bit, that um, these are again two two very very uh, well known yes. bands, and that we might be on the path of the turtle here. Ah, that's exactly right. <laughs> good to know. Any other thoughts on Richie? What else do we learn here? <laughs> oh, nothing about Richie. <laughs> <laughs> I like to Who's think Richie? about. I like to think about Iron Maiden hanging out the Dairy Town Square playing Aces High in two, two minutes to midnight. Oh, you know, I'm excited already. Hey, Aces High, is that, that's on my phone right now. <laughs> it really is. Mac actually has his phone case. It's Aces High. <laughs> 
Um, okay, anyway. But I guess we also see here a little bit of Richie. This is where his humor can kind of help him, mm-hmm. you know? Because the way he he's able to respond in a way the rest of them aren't, where he can sort of crack jokes, uh, even in the face of this kind of danger. Unfortunately, <laughs> maybe you're about to say something. Like, the way he's able to use his humor to, to get rid of Pennywise is yeah, probably I, my misery section. Yeah. It's definitely, definitely, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I had to reread that part a few times because I was like, we're not. We're this, mm. I wonder if that's going to... What if they use this in the movie? <laughs> like, yeah. just a verbatim from the book. Oh, God. Oh, Bill Hader oh, would be like, God. I really shouldn't have taken this one. <laughs> um, so then... But what the, does he remember here that helps him... That, help, that moves His absolute... He uses the voice of Jim... And is just totally like dismissive of him, like get out of here, blah 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 blah, and, and, and another uh, dialect, I'll say. And that helps, and that's just kind of a remembrance of like the ritual of Chud, like the to not be afraid, the trying to make the other one laugh, kind of thing, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, the last, uh, the last bit in this, well, not the last bit, but the second to last, uh, Bill Denbro sees a ghost. Who is the ghost? Silver. Hi-o, Silver. Away. Love Silver. Secondhand clothes, secondhand rose. Great store. It's also an insomnia. Uh, we begin with he's vis- he actually visits the sewer where Georgie met his maker in Pennywise. And there's another young boy there who also says he hears voices in the sewer. And that boy rides a skateboard. That's Justin, great. what are your yeah, thoughts, on that? Some thoughts on that? Yeah, I've got some thoughts on that. Do you really? Like, we'll share it for later on. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, you know, I'll share it now. I was going to share it for my word processor of the gods. <laughs> So, you know, Bill at one point actually imagines, because the kid offers up his skateboard for a second to let him ride a skateboard, you know. And, um, but just before imagining an accident, a conversation with the doctor, in which the doctor would say, you were guilty of two major lapses, Mr. Dinbro. The first was mismanagement of a skateboard. The second was forgetting that you are now approaching 40 years of age. Bill tells the kid to be careful, to which the kid replies, you can't be careful on a skateboard. I 100% agree. Everybody out there mm-hmm. is skateboarding. You need to stop skateboarding in the streets of downtown Chicago. I've got my headphones in. I'm trying to get to work. Get off the skateboard. Find a nice, safe, clean, safe skate park and and live the rest of your life. What about people that uh, make their living being pro skateboarders? Look, if you're Tony Hawk or what the fuck's his name? I guess he's a he's a he's a, a ski a snowboarder. Snowboarder, oh, Sean. Sean, well, Sean White's, I think his career is just about over with oh, at this point wow. for other reasons. There's another Sean. Okay. He got in trouble. <laughs> he got in trouble. Uh, yeah, okay, well, well basically, this. this is a big joke. Justin, Justin does Justin not doesn't, like... He doesn't speak for all of us. Oh, I'm, a big, no, I think, no. I'm a big skateboard fan. I'm, I'm posting on Instagram right now a picture of you saying I hate skateboarders. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, what we call, that's what we call fake news. Oh. Uh, big skateboard fan, never ridden one, but uh, they look cool when they do it, man. Ran into a car the first time I tried <laughs> and never did it again. <laughs> yeah, my friends loved it. I really tried. I had I had a board once, and I just, could, I just couldn't do it. I think this has for me to do with 99% jealousy because I'm so tall and lanky. I could never skateboard. Yeah. I could never skate. I just fall over. Isn't Tony Hawk super tall? I won't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was more into freestyle walking. I was um, say uncoordinated. So what does silver represent here? Do you guys think? I Bill? think silver has saved Bill several times. Yeah. I think it he helped so him many. growing up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just, you know, you would race to beat the devil. So in so many words, I mean, yeah. that's literally the words he would use. Yeah, I, and uh, it's 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 interesting to me the the sort of emphasis they put on that bike. I mean, did you guys have bikes that you were very close with when you were young? I a, did. A means of I had a bike for for years. The same bike for years. It was kind yeah. of like this purplish tent too. I think because I was a big fan of the uh, the Phoenix Suns, who still exist. 
believe it or not. And yeah, I remember I loved that bike so much. It was like a, I don't know, I, remember, I don't remember how many speeds it was, but very attached to that bike as a young, as a yeah. young man. I had two bikes when I was young and the first one, you know, I basically just drove it into the ground. And I remember even after I got a newer, nicer bike, my buddy was kind of a, a fix, Mr. Fix-It handyman kind of guy. And he was like deconstructing. Like a young Mike Hanlon. Yeah. He was like deconstructing a bunch of bikes to build like one mega bike, you know? And so he needed some parts and he asked if he could take my bike. And I like was like, yeah, sure. Like my old bike because I wasn't using it anymore. And then like when he took it, I got really sad. Like mm. I got like really genuinely sad and I got really melancholy because I knew he was going to just deconstruct it and throw some of the parts out and everything. And I'm like, I'm like, man, I spent so much time of my childhood on that bike. And I just like let this guy take it to go tear it apart but what else am i going to do with it like That's you know right. what else am i going to do like at least it's getting manu like refashioned in some other form yeah. like that's cool but it was like i just remember that was it's evolving when i was i was like probably you know 14 or 13 at the time and i was just like i was just so sad like it, it was like this intense sense of melancholy when i realized my bike was gone mm. Uh, I have two. Let's see. Ah. The first one would be my big wheel when I was oh, like, oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. I, I thought I was a badass when I like rolled <laughs> around the block on my little big wheel, and then I would like run over pe- like the big kids. I I would hang with the big kids and think I was cool, and I think I would do things like. I carry a little baseball bat around with me. Oh, we got I young was... Bell Chiggins, Huggins over there. <laughs> and, you know, I got to defend myself. <laughs> but when I had to step it up to a two-wheel bike, uh, I used to do this thing where I had, like, because my mom would buy me these crappy, like, little girl purses things. And so I would hook them up to the back of my bike so it would sound kind of like a motorcycle a little bit or in my oh. head. So when the tire would rub on it, it would be like, Fur! I don't know, make a revving sound. It's the equation. This is just like how they would put baseball, the, baseball the, the cards, cards on yeah, there. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I would run, go around the street with my friends, and we'd bike until it got, like, the, the sun started to set just before it got really dark and the lights came on, and we'd bike around our neighborhood in the cul-de-sac, and, like, we had our version of the Barrens because we lived next to, like, a little prairie area. Mm. And so we'd be out in that area, and it just... Like thinking back on that bike, damn! I used to do so much on it. I don't oh, have God. no idea where it is now. Wow. Yeah, I don't know where mine ended up going either. Yeah, I don't know where uh, my other one went. I know where mine went, but I had so I got I had multiple bikes probably, but the bikes I remember the most were these ones. Like my twin and I had these like matching bikes that were strange. They were like they were black, but they had like splattered paint on them. It was like, they were very, the most eighties bike. Well, that, so slash mine was like 90s. purplish with splatter, like orange. Yeah. On it, yeah. That yeah. you could ever think of it. And, and you know, I, I didn't like it at first, but you know, I had that thing for years and years. And I think we just ended up selling it at a garage sale, but I remember being pretty sad about that. Um, even Ooh. though, you know, at that time we were driving everywhere, you know, and then I, I just didn't use it anymore. And, and, but I still remember being, feeling like mm-hmm. something was being taken away here. And, and, and I was fine with it being sold, you know, but I just, it, I don't know, you're losing that part of your childhood. I can only speak for us, Mac. I mean, but we used to ride our bikes all over the place. Oh, I mean, yeah. as a kid, that's your transportation. Even yeah. if it was just down the block, you would ride your bike to your friend's house. If it was, I don't know what's going on these days, but I mean, we had free rent on those bikes. I, oh, we yeah. would we would be out all day as long yep. as you came back before it got too dark. Yes, yep. that was all. Same. Day. That's crazy. Another motif of this chapter is uh, Bill repeating. He thrusts his fists against the mm-hmm. post and still insists he sees, sees the, the ghost. ghost. What? What? Why? Why do we think that keeps haunting him in this chapter? That was something that he was never able to to pull off. Right. To, to lose his stuttering as a child, I think it would always he would always try to impress, especially I think his mother. Yeah. By mm-hmm. trying to do that, and he could never. Pull off, and we also we also find out that that is something that 
that he uses against yeah. Pennywise in yeah. the future. Yeah. Yeah. He only so, said it once. Yeah. yeah. So and it's it's slowly like coming back to the surface. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting the the fact that his stutter is coming back here. We see sort of the intense um, anxiety he feels about it coming back. And when he's in the the store, I just like I was like my heart was bleeding for him when he was. Um, oh wait, did I lose it? He's basically talking to the store owner, and he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, he says. Uh, the proprietor's eyes now showed Bill something which, even in his present confused state, he remembered and hated from his childhood. The anxiety of a man or woman who must listen to a stutterer. Mm. The urge to jump in quickly and finish the thought, thus shutting the poor bastard up. But I don't stutter. I beat it. I don't fucking stutter. And um, yeah. I think that's so interesting, sort of. What we're seeing here is not just the trauma of... I mean, I think we've seen this with a lot of the people. We're not... the What's coming back and haunting them is not just Pennywise, but also, like, whatever it was about this town and their time in this town mm-hmm. that was so disturbing and really left a mark on them, yeah. you know? Whether or not they had ever encountered Pennywise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which very is good. very interesting. And so... Um, yeah, any other thoughts on Bill? Well, the same proprietor also tells Bill, just make sure you stay off that fucking skateboard. <laughs> Does it? Does, no, it does not. Oh, <laughs> I was like, wait, did he take the skateboard? That's another example of us being way too dry. What if, what if, what if Bill was looking at silver and he's like, how much? And then the guy tells him and then he goes, and then he sees a skateboard right next to it. He goes, he like, does Actually, a wheel, pops it. I'll be taking yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> two, please. Silver 2.0. Yeah. yeah. Rad oh. silver. Like rad silver and italics or something like that. Um, so final chapter, Mike Hanlon makes a connection. This is the last chapter of this section. What do we got with Mike? Mike's uh, Mike, Mike lives in a nice little house. He used to walk by it all the time when he was a kid. Now he lives there. And uh, he bought a kit to fix a bike oh, yeah. long before he even thought that, you he know, just, he somehow knew. Had the urge, yeah. Bought the baseball card. Or wait, was it? Oh, playing yeah, the, cards. the pet playing yeah. cards and all that. So... Anything else to take away from this chapter? It's a very short chapter. I think it's yeah. the big thing. I think this whole section is mostly about the, the, the people coming back to town because yeah. Mike has been living with us forever. We don't need to have Mike going on a walking tour and dealing with everything else, you know? Yeah, it's also really short. It's only like a few pages. Yeah, it's yeah. basically just sort of tying off the loop, you know? Exactly. It's, yeah. uh, it's Bill and Mike coming back together and they're all going to go hang out at the library later and pound some brews, some cold brews. Mm. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> We're going to wrap up Heroes and Villains here with three more characters. We've seen them all. We didn't uh, invite them. We didn't invite them, but they're here. One, two, three uninvited guests. Mm. Who are they? Some good friends of ours. (laughs) Who's the first? I believe the first. Henry. Henry Henry Bowers. Bowers. Henry. Henry Bowers. I, I, well, I think that's the thing I quote the most from that miniseries. Henry, Henry Bowers. So, uh, so we learn a lot in this section because oh, yeah. Henry is a very key component of all of this. Mm-hmm. What would you say are, are some of the key takeaways here? I guess for me, I I still uh, was shocked even though I remembered this, but then I didn't. Like um, It came back to me, but I had forgotten that all the murders had been pinned on him. Yeah, and some uh, were just by coincidence, and yeah. he was kind of forced, compelled to admit to a lot of them. yeah. The problem, I think, was probably because he killed his father. Yeah. yeah. Didn't yeah. look good. And then he actually did do that. <laughs> he actually yeah. that one. <laughs> and I love that section. Yes. Like when he actually does it. But we find all that out here. So he's in Juniper Hill, very famous place. Mm-hmm. He's uh, surrounded by a lot of perverts and weirdos and a lot of very mean guards. Yeah. I got to say, one of, the, one of those perverts and weirdos is named... Coons. Coons. <laughs> I had to think. Was that a nod? Is, was that a? It's gotta a dig? be. I think it's. I think it's a. I think it's a dig. He 
knows what he's, he's in, doing. He's in Juniper Hills. <laughs> yeah, he's also an asshole too. So, yeah. I wonder if Dean Koontz is afraid of uh, of Doberman Pinchers or whatever. Is that oh, the dog that he's yeah, afraid I of? Think so. yeah, yeah. yeah, I wonder if in real life he's afraid of them, and this was King having a little fun. Maybe I just you know I'm looking forward to that Koontz cast. Koontz cast <laughs> it is happening. Um, 2019. Look, look out for that. Yeah. 2019. <laughs> Keep it up for that on um, April 1st, 2019. <laughs> <laughs> so. It begins with Henry hearing voices, and he is being spoken to by the moon, which is very spooky. I really thing. thought that was creepy. And then, uh, then he's got a visitor underneath his bed, who different from the miniseries. It's not Belch, but Victor Chris, mm-hmm. who had his head ripped off. We find out. I think the idea of anything popping up from any bed in any horror mm-hmm. story is usually effective, and it's this is no exception. I was always one of those kids who never like wanted to look under my bed. Or, yeah. like, if I got off of my bed, I would jump far enough so that, like, I would never have to be close enough for something to suck me under. I very rarely, even, I don't know why, I very rarely will, especially at night, will just leave my head, my feet dangling over my bed. Me neither. Like it's it. creepy. I think if, I am usually don't even think about it, I'm fine. But as soon as I start to think about mm-hmm. if there's, there's something mm-hmm. under my bed, nine times out of ten, I have to check. Mm-hmm. I have yeah. to check. I just, like, turn my flashlight on, look under, I'm like, no, okay, it's no. fine. Mm. But yeah, I, I, I love, I guess I've always been struck by this Henry section and I love the character so much because man, this is such a stark contrast to like where we last met him, you know, mm-hmm. like the rest of the characters, they all kind of, there's, you know, they, they're adult versions of the characters that we knew when they were kids. And I guess what I love about Henry is that, you know, we go from this kid who kind of ruled the roost around Derry, this little bully, uh, to being this old battered, like, you know, cowering uh, guy in a mental institution. Do you think the book would have ultimately been just plain awful if they made it where Henry was like a rival architecture <laughs> architect to uh, a rival architect to Ben? Like he was like he was getting like the magazine covers. And, How do you and, get away with murder though? That's the also that, but it, the big revelation. You'd be like, oh, I did kill half those kids. Oh my god! Yeah, no, I, that I would be so funny. Oh god! Lame. I just, I just, I love that stark contrast there. I love the idea that Henry is sort of lost all of his power mm-hmm. uh, back then, and he was sort of abandoned by Pennywise in that sense. Totally but used then, by him. Yeah, and that's why I love, I love the Patsy archetype is always my is my favorite of all mm-hmm. archetypes, and uh, I love Henry because he's he's one of the best Patsies ever. Written, in my opinion, I love that character. Just somebody who's used for means that they don't fully understand, you know, and their lives are ruined because of it. But he's so quick to sort of feel useful again uh, when do, Pennywise do you starts think speaking. Think with with Henry that he was going slowly crazy because of some Pennywise influence, or do you think that he was always destined to go somewhat crazy? Destined to yeah. be yeah. somewhat crazy. Like I mean, he was already he would always go to the point of I'm going to kill you. Like that was his immediate response to them whenever they did yeah. something that pissed yeah. him off. Well, and as the book goes on, it, 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 they keep saying he really it really seemed like he meant it this time. Yeah. Like there was really something becoming unhinged about him. But I think it's I think it's deliberately ambiguous. Yeah. And that's yeah. sort of uh which I, I know and that's the point of your question. Exactly. Yeah. Like that's, it, that's good. That's good. I just right. didn't know if anybody had thought there was a little bit more of a definitive answer because well, I don't know. Well, I, don't I know. think I think it gets to one of the book's themes. I mean, and this is just kind of the way King loves to play around with the darker side of small towns. You know, I mean, this is something we've seen back in Salem's Lot and, and other books. Um, 
it's it's this whole idea of he takes sort of a certain archetype that we do encounter as children and he can make it genuinely malevolent kind of by using the idea that the town itself is cursed, you know? And so the evil that's within kids, it gets amplified to such an insane degree. And I think we're meant to wonder, you know, with him and Hockstetter, because Hockstetter, so we find out in the next part, we'll be talking about that next week. He's cruel beyond belief, that kid. You that's know? a whole other psych- psychosis. And it, and it sort of uh, makes you wonder... You know, with these kids, like, is that is that sort of uh, rotten quality to them? Has it been exacerbated by well, Pennywise I, and by the evil in the town? Because they like the thing is so many core components of those kids are recognizable, you know, as bullies. And we talked a lot last week about the idea of bullying and why Henry resonates and Victor and, and Belch, all of them resonate, uh, you know, in that larger context of of school bullies and the way that King often uh, takes bullies and sort of gives them a genuine malevolence, like a violence. That I, I, is, I think. To yeah, Aisha's point, if you if you do go with the angle that he was always destined to be crazy, it would make sense because he grew up with Butch Bowers. Yeah, definitely. Who, who made went him through kill things. the Hamlin's dog. Yes, yeah. who, who <laughs> went through things and was constantly inflicting racism, racist thoughts upon him, violence towards everybody else, mistrust, and was also abusing Henry his entire life, it sounds like. Yeah. So, like I said, maybe he was always destined to be crazy or maybe... Pennywise just pushed him to that next yeah. level, you know. Like, I, I, yeah. Go ahead. No, I think he definitely is just crazy from the get go. Yeah. Mm. But definitely, obviously, Pennywise knows that and he's able to to totally use him. That's why he's his tool, yeah. You know, especially now, especially when in this chapter when he comes to him and he he knows that he can't get to them necessarily. But if he, if if one of if Henry gets to them, then they're they're done. You yeah. Know? yeah. Like in the real world, he he can hurt them. Mm-hmm. You know, if they if they don't believe in him, it's harder for him to to make a. a to make any kind of dent unless they actually come oh, attack right. him and he doesn't want them to get that yeah. close, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he definitely has an influence over him. But I think that Henry's batshit crazy from definitely. the get-go. Well, and it's interesting, too, the idea of it being passed down generationally. Like, his dad is so responsible for it. And I think that speaks to, like, the grander... Like, if we want to jump ahead just slightly to the interlude, we kind of see the way that all of their parents and grandparents you know, gun down the Bradley gang in the middle mm-hmm. of town, you know, and uh, that whole section to me is very indicative of, you know, something really rotten at the core of the town. And one of the most telling moments of it is that they say that Bill Denbro's dad, Zach, was was a child at the time yeah. mm-hmm. and was present for it. Like mm-hmm. he was he was around. And that to me was very interesting because it just ties to the generational line of this all and the whole idea that we are watching, um, you know, that evil is being passed through generationally. And the idea that, you know, people are being corrupted uh, is something that Pennywise probably wants. And then he uses that. And he easily corrupted. That. Yeah, easily. Yeah, yeah. that's the yeah. thing. It's, it's like, just it's just going to happen. It it's feels not like, you know? hard to no. like tip them there. That actually is a good point. And um, or it brings me to something that I, I can't remember where I read it earlier, but the, them constantly talking about how Derry had almost like it has become so ingrained in what Derry is that they kind of need each other to survive. It's yeah. The I think it was maybe when they were talking about um, in the beginning with uh, Adrian Mellon's character yep. when that is going on, mm-hmm. how this like darkness has just been building and feeding and living off of dairy for so long and the people are a part of it and they like don't realize that it's controlling controlling them and there's a point where like if we go back to the beginning of the grown-up section where i think it's like page 479 and bill 
I saved it. He's he's in the cab with the uh, Dave the cabbie, and he says, "Just a feeling that dairy was cold, that dairy was hard, that dairy didn't give a shit if any of them lived or died, and certainly not if they triumphed over Pennywise the clown. Dairy folk had lived with Pennywise and all his guises for a long time, and maybe in some mad way they had even come to understand him, to like him, to need him, love him, maybe." Yes, maybe that too. I have the yeah. same and quote. That's yeah. really that's good. the first thing that's leading yeah. the cemetery because I agree with you. It's yeah. so creepy. Yeah. And I think that goes to the fact that like it even if Butch and uh if Butch and uh Henry are had the predisposition to be crazy, it you know, there could be anything like it's nature versus nurture. It could have been mm-hmm. that Henry could have been okay. He might yeah. have been if Pennywise had not been there and if Derry wasn't like this dark, seething abyss of just evil, he might have been, yeah, a bully, but he might have not killed his father. He might yeah. have not been so yeah. psychotic. So, Well, it's interesting to consider, you know, one of King's favorite themes is the idea of the darkness that lies beneath, you know, otherwise uh, placid areas. And and that to me, I feel like, like that's why Pennywise is such a – He's such like sort of the master thesis on that whole King theme, the that whole motif, because it that whole idea that we that we become almost dependent on sort of the darkness. And like I've been to so many communities or I've lived in communities where it almost seems like there's it's it's like there's almost this sort of sense of comfort within the darkest, the darkness and the darker, darker aspects, you know, like, and by that, of course, I don't mean, you know, murder and things like that. I'm just saying from the communities that I grew up in, it's like, you know, just sort of a capacity to two face, two face kind of qualities and shit talking and, and kind of, um, uh, you know, just a general sense that nobody trusts each other. And I guess that's like what I've always related to. Like, you know, when people talk about the closeness of small communities, I've never related to that because I grew up in sort of a suburb where I felt, yeah, I felt like, yeah, I mean, I grew up in kind of of a suburb in, in, um, outside of Detroit. And I never felt, and I just, all I felt like were all my parents, my friend's parents were always just talking shit about each other. Mm. Whenever I went there, there was always this sense that, um, nobody liked each other. My parents, I love them to death, but they talked a lot of shit. You know, I, I felt like that they were, that they didn't fully trust the community. You know, there wasn't a closeness. Like your mom was like a Henrietta Bowers. <laughs> well, it was like, uh, I've been watching, I've been watching this, uh, there's a great drag queen named Alyssa Edwards and she has a new Netflix mm, show like called dancing queen yeah. and it's awesome and it's all about it. yeah it's all about her uh, her dance school in texas and well his um i always think of her as Alyssa, but it's uh, justin is the is the guy who runs the school and justin gerber <laughs> but <laughs> thank, what, you, for, thank one, you for supporting my show but one thing that's interesting there is you see all the dance moms and one of the things that the dance moms were doing that i was like like you know blanching at clutching my pearls at was like these old like 40 something women are like trashing these 10 year old girls Ugh. because they're getting opportunities that their kids aren't getting and they're just like you're gonna say that like my daughter's not as good as Atlee you know oh. and at, like and it's just like and Jen and I are like how, what drives you to be like that like to trash a 10 year old girl Jealousy. you know Jealousy. I know and it's exactly so disgusting but, but, it's, it, but we all are like yeah. a part of it because even I feel like I've caught myself sometimes like hell so, yeah like when I'm in my dance class and I'm like, 
I have to stop myself. I'm like, what are you doing? These are your friends. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you should congratulate them because they're doing really great. Like, what's wrong with you? But we all have that, like, little demon in our head. It's, it's that like, competitive nature yeah. in all of us, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, like, that's what I'm getting at is there is there is that that that, li- that light sort of darkness that we understand. And King always takes it up and brings it into the true horror level, you know? Well, put put oh, you a, little, did- a little dancing Pennywise on your shoulder. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Aisha, did you live? Because you, I know you live kind of close to a prairie, but would you say you lived in the suburbs? Or where, where, when where I, did you live? Okay, so when I was young, my parents moved out to Hazelcrest. So mm-hmm. it's like a south suburb. If you are ever in south suburbs of Chicago, you know, like Chicago Heights area mm-hmm. or home, like I'm out there. That's where they used to live. So there was a prairie area there, but like we had a pretty close knit uh, like group in our cul-de-sac. Like not all the families hung out, but yeah. like. Mm-hmm. A few of us did, and like you're, you all the kids would stay at someone's house while the parents went out. So like, yeah. they were close. I don't know. Hopefully, my parents never hear this. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes there was shit talk, but I feel like there was never a point. So when you guys were talking about closeness to the community, yeah, mm-hmm. they may have not trusted the community itself in the sense of like the whole space of our neighborhood. Yeah. But there were families that they connected with but they did talk everyone talked shit about each other because i mean like that was the way it was but they would always be there to help you if you needed it and that's good yeah but then when we moved to another neighborhood in a little bit richer neighborhood and i want to say richer but like just affluent not even more slightly more affluent because my parents wanted us to go to a better high school uh the people there were less welcoming yeah like there was more of a i'm helping you or i'm being nice to you because there's an ulterior motive yeah so it was almost like we lost that sense of like closeness or connection or being able to trust each other because i feel like all friends i'm sorry all friends talk shit about each other at one point in our Mm -hmm. lives so i think that in and of itself is is not so much the negative it's if you talk shit and you truly are like wishing ill content for that person or family or whatever Mm -hmm. and not there to help them when they truly need it and like i grew up in the beginning having people in a small town or a small section of our neighborhood. We weren't a small city or small town, but we were a small section of the neighborhood. Yeah. So maybe I had that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Well, the smaller the community, I mean, it's, it, that tends to help a little bit. Mm. I feel like that's like suburbs are just so impersonal, you know? Mm. And, uh, I mean, you know, every house looks the same, et cetera. And it's like, I just, uh, I've, I despise suburbia with like every bone in my body because I, I hated growing up in suburbia. And See, just, I I loved it though. Really, but I think there was still a sense of neighborhood and community well, in our yeah. su- in our suburbs. Because each subdivision, I felt, was its own little town, yeah, little community, definitely. little town. Like our our street, we had such close knit friends and and, and our parents had friends down the street. Yeah, and, things like that, and you know? then you know you. It go seemed real as a thing. It didn't seem like it was some. Like Celebration Florida, which but is basically also, a fake Disney neighborhood, you know? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like that. But it also, wasn't like that. Yeah. <laughs> also, though, for us, when we first moved to that to that area, everything was brand new. It was just being built. Yeah. So that that was like one of the only communities in the in the area in which we were living. I mean, there were other there were other little suburbs like just around there. But well, like so, I said, so now it's like was, back to feature too. Well, yeah, but it was a tight it was a tight knit like close community. But then now you go back there and it's just every, it's just everything's developed. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's no there's no forest. There's no it's like every single block of land is something. So and it's, it's kind of like dairy it's, it's, modern. It, 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 it does mm-hmm. feel like modern dairy. Yeah. Oh, we lived at dairy dairy forest. <laughs> <laughs> um, truth comes out. So Henry Bowers. Okay, uh, so I know. We, <laughs> yeah. uh, we could save something for misery, but I do think that um, to quote Billy Crystal, he went too far. <laughs> yeah, 
I think there's one effective thing in this scene, but I'm going to save it for the cemetery. But, uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I never, I didn't like it in the miniseries. And when I yeah. got to the book and I went, no, it's oh, they were being faithful to the book. It's too cute. But it's not. Yeah. Well, it's not like a dog in a clown suit. Just is adorable. It doesn't work in the miniseries because they never set up that the guard was afraid of that dog. No. So like in the, in the miniseries, just like, wait, what the fuck? Could they just have had like a cool moment, like where like a lock unlatches and that's it. And then something's like something distracts somebody All else. All you need like, to see is was like dead Belch grab him and and slit his throat or something. You know what yeah. I mean? Dead like Victor, that would have been good. Like, yeah, Victor in the book. Yeah, I would say I honestly, know. I think just keep these people who are not even in Derry out of it, though. I, I don't think like I don't like how he's able to affect somebody who doesn't even live in Derry. For uh, so that's, that's why I, for me, I'm like, I just get I, just just have him get yeah, out of there. Somehow. I agree, but that's why I felt like it was more important in this scene for Henry to do the breaking out, like. But have, because he's like empowered now by by Pennywise, or like, Henry could just that, kill the guard. Yeah, that's what I'm that's, saying. Yeah. That that Henry yeah. takes the that leap that been. he had been scared to take because now he feels like he has like this power of um, Pennywise protection. Agreed. Or I just imagine like him and the Doberman clown skipping out of the <laughs> exactly <laughs> like holding hands. Like the aftermath well, does not work. Like, I can't yeah, imagine. Yeah. Um, what what, what <laughs> if that Doberman clown just stay with him the rest of the book? Like everywhere <laughs> okay. he showed up. So <laughs> who's right. scarier, Henry Bowers or? Tom Rogan. Oh, you know, Tom it's Rogan. very scary. Is, that's tough, but I, I kind of have to agree with you, especially what he does to, to Kay. Yeah. yeah. So we, we meet yeah. Kay McCall, who yeah. is, well, not me. We've seen her before, but uh, uh, Bev's friend, basically the one woman who helped her kind of uh, get her bearings after she left Tom. Tom shows up and uh, is is very unkind. Never this is interesting to me because you feel like Tom is going to be this, you hear these nightmare domestic abuse stories, but usually it's so well hidden away from the public eye. Like you just hear about the abuse towards the spouse or something like that. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he's actually doing this to a friend yeah. that you figure he would be, you know, lying to is shows just how truly psychotic he is at this point. I too. wonder though, if he, if like she had guy friends that she went to, what yeah. would he have done? Like, would he just shown up with like a gun and like started shooting them? Cause yeah. I mean, that seems what he wants to do when he gets to dairy. Yeah. But like, I think he's just feels he's got such an empowerment over women mm. that he can just beat them into submission and he's got all the power and, and he doesn't have to go the lengths of killing, which he would probably have to do, like you said, with a, uh, with Well, men. you had just mentioned the whole idea of uh, Pennywise affecting people outside of dairy. Do you yeah. think he has his claws in Tom? I don't think so. Tom's just not I think this, this is own? just Tom is an abusive monster. Man, King, like... King can some. I feel like he gets so the way like the way he writes bullies to me. Like he's so he's very into that archetype, and he makes them more. You know, he kind of takes the innate quality of of what makes them awful, and then he trans he brings it up to genuine evil. And with uh, sort of abusive husbands, man, when he writes one, he goes man. far. Like, have you read Rose Matter, Aisha? No. Yeah, Rose Matter is like that. Right. I mean, should I not read that? No, I mean, <laughs> I like, it's it's a pretty good book. I'm actually excited <laughs> to get to it on the pod. Well, I, I read it when I was way too young but that whole book is about spousal abuse and it's um it's about like elevating sort of the abuser to the level of genuine monster like actual monster and so it's terrifying and uh but the way he writes Tom reminds me a lot where this guy is like a wrecking ball you know mm-hmm. and he um is completely unfeeling and I guess my problem and I feel like we might have talked about this uh oh I think we talked about it last week a little bit just about Tom um is that there's almost something like I you don't see what love like what what I, what I is his love this. for Bev? How you know, did he get her? yeah, yeah. How did he yes. get her? What is I, the I think I I, I was on that first episode. I think it's a situation where he was like a, an attractive young young guy, 
successful and showed Bev, who lived her entire life under her the psychological fuck-ups of her father and just was drawn to him. And so when he started becoming very domineering, her, um, not instinct, but what she was just psychologically programmed. Programmed, yes. ex- programmed is the best word for Aisha. Mm-hmm. Well, I and I, I think can, that is why yeah. she was so easily drawn to him. I feel like if she had lived a pleasant childhood, I think she might have been like, fuck this guy, I'm out of here. You know, but I just think that the way that she was raised and that well, fucks and I, with somebody's head when you're a kid. And I and I, I do get that. I just I felt like in the book, even up until this point, and I said this in the first episode, I just there are moments where she keys in with her father that she's like, and you know, like I did love my father, I did love him. So it, it, and there's a there's a I feel like there's a moment or a couple of moments where she actually says. She knows that her father actually does love her, and so it's like really confusing that relationship. And I don't think I think that's a grooming thing too. Like you know, I love you, Bevy, and he's just like, oh, oh, I love you too, Dad. Yeah, it's it's sugar with a bit of bitterness to it, right? Well, I guess what I'm getting, but but my thing with Tom was that I just I felt like they never showed because we never got Bev's perspective on Tom. If we had spent as much time with Bev. Thinking about Tom as we get with Bev thinking yeah, about that's a good her point. father. Right, I'm sure we would oh, have a you similar. Know what? Thing. We actually touched on similar ideas last episode, and we were t- like, uh, I believe it was Mel who was talking about that the father is so much more defined than Tom because we get to see Bev's yeah. perspective. Yeah. perspective. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's a good point because I guess it's like I go a little crazy in these Tom chapters because he is so unspeakably evil. Like even Henry is given dimension. Like uh, I almost feel like the problem with Tom, and he's a good villain in the sense that you you fucking hate this guy yeah. but like i just i want to see like is there a part of him like wh- wh- how, how does he care does he care for bev or like is there any semblance of love inside of there that manifests as violence or is this guy just a pure controlling monster i don't think I, there was ever a point of like I just yeah just thinking of the character that's been portrayed so far i don't think there was ever a point of love for yeah, her yeah i don't think so and that's the thing okay so one of my friends she works with like a rape advocacy mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. and like domestic abuse domestic abuse it's like it's not so much sometimes that they love you ever like yeah. there's it's more of like they just need something to control mm-hmm. it's not so i'm curious because of the fact that king doesn't go into like how they met yeah. or like what exactly like drew her or like how did he because most of the time you see them they they're the sweetest people ever in the beginning mm-hmm. they draw you in they're charismatic yeah. there's no type of negative like negative you might have like little signs here and there but it's never anything like full-on violent or aggressive or physical yeah and that's why i'm like before they got married was there anything that popped up was it that like I, there's so many questions. I, I, have I do about think that. in the first part, there's an early date that's discussed where he slaps her in the face in the car, right? Yeah, because mm-hmm. she's yeah. just about to smoke yeah. or something like that. That was the first sentence. And then, but I, I feel like at that point after- he had groomed her into like being loving at that point, mm-hmm. and probably mm-hmm. there are probably no incidents. And then to pop like that. Because then that would be, that would preclude her to be like, okay, it's a one-time thing. Yeah. He was just upset and it was my, and like that's when you get into that psychological sphere of like, it was my fault. I like triggered this in him and then that would make more yeah. sense well, to me. That's how I, that's how I read Because, it you know, like, I mean, I'm like, we grew up and like, I, I like my twin had a rough childhood and, and I felt like, there was so much tumultuousness growing up that I confused, um, like loving my brother with 
uh, like that uncomfortability. So whenever I'd feel nervous, uncomfortable in a relationship, I thought I kind of that felt like normal or or comfortable to me. So mm-hmm. I would be like more inclined to stay in a bad you, relationship, defending too much and not. Looking yeah, up I would be more inclined were. to to be in a relationship like that that was uncomfortable because it to me it felt like well that just means I really care about this person, but sometimes that's not that's not mm-hmm. what that means usually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, yeah, it, I can see. I, I mean, yeah, I could definitely see what how that goes, but I think I agree with you. I I, I think that Tom. It's all about control, and I, I think that he loves control, mm-hmm. and that he, because he has, he has that control with her, I think that he loves that, but not really loves Bep. And I think that but, he's chasing that. You and know? I do think though that he is he as much like Henry at a certain point when he was younger. I think at this point, Tom is officially snapped into that next level of psychosis, oh, yeah. where yeah. again he is there is no exterior to, to block him from the rest of the world. He is now well, just out there beating up other random yeah. people. Yeah. You know? He also definitely sexualizes her in a specific way. Yeah. Like, she, cause he, there, I, I think it's when he's actually on his way to come find her where he talks about how no other woman was like fit the specific standard. He would go home with all these models that wanted him, like, which also plays to his ego, which I feel like, that was why he wanted her as well. She's mm-hmm. a powerful, successful woman in of herself. And he's able to control this powerful, successful woman and subjugate her to his will. But then also he was like idolizing her hair and her breast and like her body compared to other people. And then you get into that whole Audra thing versus Bev. I won't get into that now. But, <laughs> but I Part think four. that like he has this like, okay, so this ideal woman that I want to subjugate is Bev. Mm-hmm. And now she's like trying to like... Free herself from me? Oh, hell no. And I think that's like setting him off on this whole other psychotic yeah. tangent. Yeah. And Kay is the one helping her yeah. leave. Ooh, you know? Poor Kay and her damn You face. mentioned Audra. Do we think Audra loves Bill? Oh, yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was like, really yeah, good. Like, I, think she, I think she dislikes him just as much as Tom hates Bev. Yeah, I'm just, I, I, I'm just yeah, segueing. I don't think she likes him that yeah, much. That's, that's a, a natural yeah. segue. Classic Colburn segue. <laughs> Classic CC. Uh, CC, as we call them here. Uh, Audra is, she. we kind of see a lot of her dealing with the director of the movie. Mm. Uh, what's his name? Like Freddie uh, or something? Who I really Freddie. want Freddie. Richard, Richard Thomas to play in the new version. <laughs> yeah, can we get Richard? He like cuts, but it opens, come in, he like cuts his ponytail off. Yeah. <laughs> So we basically see her fly over and then we watch sort of her rent a car and then her and Tom are kind of on these parallel journeys. Mm-hmm. They both stay at hotels like, I don't know, they stay at the same hotel and then their cars are parked like Yeah, right across from each other, yeah. So, Simpatico. It's interesting, yeah, because you have someone who's generally there because they love this person, they're concerned and they're like, I want to help, I want to figure out what's going on. And you have this other psychopath that's like, well, we already just yeah. yeah. So, you know, like. I, I love the contrast there, but I do love how they are. You, you one would say that they're on the path of the beam. I don't know at this mm-hmm. point. So. Well, yeah. I mean, are you guys drawn to Audra? Do you like her? What do, what do we think about her? As a I don't think uh, it's. I think she's there to be the supportive wife of Bill Denbro. I don't think that she necessarily has like a real strong identity. Besides, you know, like, I don't know. I also I th- I like the not I like but. The interesting fact of how her and Bev are kind of compared by King yeah. a little bit. So I think that's really the only other I mean, thing I take away from her. It's yeah. the vice written, you know, because again, I think that's probably why he was so drawn to Audra because deep down his first emotions, I guess we're assuming his first female emotions towards Bev when they were younger, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I just uh, don't have a huge strong connection to her. Cypher and, situation. Yeah, I found it kind of. Um, you, you don't know. like British actresses? 
Well, she's not even British, remember? Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. She, she's lived there for a while, but she's actually American. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, so she's on her way to come get to come get her schlubby writer husband. The loser. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so basically, wait, do her and do her and Tom cross paths yet? By the end of this? No. no. Yeah, not yet. It's it it, it happens. Spoiler alert. Um, <gasps> uh oh. Yeah, the, they, they the actually top. end up together. Watch out. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> what if they did? Oh god. Um, so. Uh, should we move on? To, uh, should we talk briefly about the interlude? Let's do it. Yeah, uh, we'll just. Uh, I guess we will probably. I, I know I have some stuff here that's in this section later mm-hmm. in our various later sections. But basically, we get one last, or not one last, but another interlude from Mike here, where he talks about another dark moment of dairy history, wherein basically. Uh, uh, a gang, the Bradley gang, a uh, group of bank robbers, um, several men and women, uh, basically are hiding out near Derry. They find out, and instead of really learning the authorities, they basically just wait for them to come in town and then shoot them to hell. I'll echo what I think it was Mel that said in an earlier episode that when when she was growing up, the least impactful moments of the book were the interludes. But I love these interludes. Mm, yeah, it really does. It really does add something to the story and to obviously. What what dairy is not just how evil Pennywise itself is. Yeah, I I I felt the same way. Whenever I got to an inter- whenever I got to an interlude, because I was so wrapped up in the story, mm-hmm. I felt like oh I don't want to go on this derailed conversation. But man, I would get so wrapped yeah. up in these stories like and the, the stories they tell. It is. Yeah, it is. And like, <laughs> and I love Hanlon. I love Mike Hanlon like so much. Well, his and, voice is so great. Like King has yeah. a really strong uh, connection to that voice. But that the the whole Bradley gang murder, I felt like at the beginning, I was like, I just could care less. But yeah. at the end of it, I was so invested and just felt like, oh, this is so creepy. I wish we could see this. Well, yeah, you know? and just like, like yeah. and the fact that Pennywise, like everyone saw him in a different place. Yeah, is so scary. And then no one questioned it. They just were like, oh, well, he just didn't want to be scene so we just figured maybe that's why he was wearing a clown costume yeah. or that one guy was like he was sense. leaning out the window so far it, was, it didn't make sense yeah and that he cast no shadow yeah it was just like much so like the great oasis song. weird you know for me though it was um <laughs> uh I, I i always talk about how much i love horror and daylight and so it's imagining just being like like the sun shining down but yeah. it's just still there in plain view oddly like floating as they say he's floating outside uh a window, you know, and, and I like it. Ugh. Yeah, and I like it too because you know so many of the older guys were you know people who are the fathers or the grandfathers of the mm-hmm. characters that we have. I mean, like you know Victor Chris's dad is part of it, and oh yeah, he says like young Zach Denbro. Yeah, young yeah. Zach yeah. Yeah. Denbro. Like, we, see, we see a lot of names that are familiar, and he doesn't need to spell it all out for us. Like we can make the connections ourselves. And then uh, Keen is the one, the the pharmacist, mm-hmm. who is actually a much bigger character in this story than I than I oh, remembered. Yeah. Yeah. He plays a big part in the next section with Eddie. And um, and uh, it's it's interesting to sort of hear that like it, it's one of those king things that annoys me where we're already getting like a guy remembering something and then within the memory it's another guy telling a story oh, who yeah, is yeah. remembering something so it's like. That always sounds like it's like a one through the keyhole situation. I know, it always drives oh, it me crazy in King, but in this, it, it doesn't really bother me. Yeah. It's just like it's, it's. I'm so enraptured in yeah, this story that's been told, though, you know. And it's a cool sort of. I wonder if it's maybe like a short story idea that King had, and he just kind well, of found a way to meld it in yeah. here because it's uh it's very creepy. I think this is this is used in a different way from even the Black Spot story because this kind of just talks about. I like I like what he writes here. He writes people lied about being at that uh, Bobby Thompson ball game because they wish they had been there. But people will lie to you about being, being in Derry that day because they wish they hadn't been. Yeah. Like they acknowledge that what they've done is awful. Wow. It's not like they're like, we're great people. We're going to. But would they not do it again? Yeah. No. Yeah, they <laughs> would, you know. They would. The yeah. The and they would just dismiss it and act like they didn't, you know. Yeah. yeah. Very spooky. Um, any other thoughts or shall we, shall we move on? 
I'm I'm ready. I'm Let's ready do to... it. What's the next section? Uh, we broke it down. Well, the next section. In... You want to do one of your classic Colburn uh, transitions? Well, let me just say that you know my transitions are almost as good as uh, Paul Sheldon's in the book Misery when he writes his misery novels. So I think that uh, serves as a pretty good segue into a section we like to call Misery. <laughs> oh, boy. Wow. wow! There is a classic Colburn segue. She she died. She just slipped away. Misery is a section where we like to recount things that maybe we didn't enjoy, things that we thought were pretty bad. This was a section that was born out of necessity when we started reading some Stephen King books that we didn't like so much, and we were like, we have no place to talk about these things we don't like. Luckily, it is a good book, so we don't have a lot. But um, there are some. I mentioned my good friend, the Doberman Clown, earlier. So I, if, if it, we'll, we'll go in a circle here. We might, we might end up like circling around the same thing here. But Aisha, what do you, what do you have? Anything? Uh, well, as we all know from my earlier mentions, would be any and everything, everything that uh, Richie would say in his voices. Yes. Mm-hmm. Specifically, yeah. I, I, so I'm sorry, everyone. I lost my notes in Poland. So the exact page. Page for 599. 599. <laughs> uh, the the grac- Grackles attack. Yeah, let's bring it all the way back. He said five ninety nine. Five ninety nine. Yeah, because... If it doesn't sink, we'll pass the book over to you. Are you out of your mind? Oh, oh God. I can't God. even. I, I will not even bother trying not to do the, uh, oh, imita- what a, the imitations. What a, oh, God. I'm not going to try to do the voice. Oh, God, no. <laughs> That's what, okay. What, yeah, what version of the... Oh, we might have different yeah. versions. Oh, you why, do. Yeah, you why, do. why don't you just read mine? Please. <laughs> Please. <laughs> if you want oh, to. Oh, Lord. Ugh. <laughs> Let's see. And yet again, he heard his mouth, but this time it was not his voice or any of his created voices, past or present. It was a voice he had never heard before. Later, he would tell others hesitantly that it was the kind of Mr. Jive-ass nigger voice. (laughs) (laughs) Stephen (laughs) King, we have to talk. (laughs) Loud and proud, self-parroting and screechy. We're all like we're all literally like cringing, like like contorting in a certain way. Like I feel uh, myself dying uh, as I'm trying to say this. Oh man! Get off my my case, you big old honky clown! He shouted, and suddenly he was laughing again. No shit, and and no shine, muffa. I got the walk, I got the talk, I got the big bopping cock, I got the time, I got the mime. I'm a man with the plan. Do you feel me dying inside? I can. I can feel the life leaving the room. It's like a Dementors over here. I feel like there's like a patch where it's like, Uh, Richie would later tell his friends he was Bagger Vance. You all get the point. Yeah. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, it was, it's awkward. Well, he does end up by calling him a white face bunghole. Bunghole, yeah. Bunghole. Well, yeah, it's tough. Great Rob Rob Zombie album. So many people talk about like their their issues (laughs) with a a specific part of this book that happens in the fifth uh, portion of the fifth chapter that Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about for sure. Mm -hmm. But this is something that I 
I, I did not know. I wasn't ready for because all I had known was the miniseries. And yeah, he does a lot of dumb voices in that. But you're not able to drop but I was not certain ready. bombs on ABC in 1998. They only yeah. did once, and that was when Henry Bowers was trying to cut up Mike Hanlon on the street. That's yes. right. They called him. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> and like, so when I, and I always liked Richie, and I, you know, I still like, I still like the character Richie. I just, mm. I, I, and definitely now they're obviously they're updating it. And this is obviously a, a product of the time that he was trying to capture this what he thought was maybe when in, in, we, in the 50s we, this kid that would have been like popular because I, I, I just I don't know I, I it obviously it doesn't work for we, we talk about this all the time on the like, podcast this is just a product of its time and like this would not have been written in 2018 well I feel like if he was friends with Mike like if I was Mike and my friend my white friend said yeah. that he would get popped in his mouth, told never to do that again, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. then we would You would be go beyond beep, beep, Richie. Yes. Yeah, so. beep, punch, punch, Richie. No. <laughs> One pop, punch pop, Richie. Is all we need. <laughs> um, actually, my misery is only a couple pages before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, because I just find the... I find wacky evil to be not yeah, good. Yeah. And so it just drives me nuts. But there's... But I also just noticed while I was revisiting this, just a really bad line. Um, and it's when Richie is, is engaged with Paul Bunyan, which is a section I do like, yeah. but all the rock mm. band stuff yeah. is so oh, it's been dumb. heavy. It's I kind of just glazed. A yeah, <laughs> but there's like one line that I hate. He's like, "What was that Peter Gabriel tune? Shock the monkey? Well, this monkey had been shocked enough. Mm. It was time to gain, catch some Z's, and maybe gain a little perspective. It's like, what are you doing? That's bad writing. <laughs> and then, uh, but then later, um, he sees like the marquee in front of the city center, and it's like Richie Tozier, man of a thousand voices, returns to Dairyland of one thousand dances in honor. Of Trash Mouth's return, City Center probably presents the Ricky Richie Tozier All Dead Rock Show, and it's like Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, blah blah blah. Special guest vocalist Jim Morrison, welcome home, Richie. You're dead too. And then later, it's just like it's still rock and roll to me. Uh, and Richie Tozier's All Dead Rock Show written on balloons, and I'm just kind of like, no, that's so stupid. If like, it was just on the balloons, that's fine. Cause it, that happens a couple times yeah, in the book. I guess yeah. it's just like it's like that. It's wacky ghost, you know? Yeah, I, yeah. I, hate wacky I, I hear you. I, hear you. Yeah. I had a couple in the notes for that uh, and there's a section that only I ever have on my notes called Rock and Roll King <laughs> and it's whenever he mentions cool bands and shit I thought that was your misery Go no no well yeah there was um, as well as this other one here but the, uh, the, the one I'm talking about is when uh, um, oh god I'm like I'm totally blanking now oh, oh Eddie yeah, the baseball yeah. thing. Eddie's yeah. baseball yeah. thing yeah. Like yeah. doesn't work for me. It wasn't scary. It's wacky. And then, and then when yeah. we get to Bev's, when we get to the Kirsch scene, it's just it's even more highlighted to me that how not scary that yes. that mm-hmm. the, that section is, and it just doesn't doesn't work out of all the walking. It feels tours. almost like an afterthought. Like yeah. he forgot to write the Eddie section. And he just <laughs> came like, back and did that one on the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I have the same thing here, man. So okay. How about some creepy baseball? Mine players? is yeah. mine. Actually, has to do with. Because, you know, all the murders are pinned on Henry, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's kind of a suggestion that maybe Pennywise framed Henry by by stealing Veronica Grogan's underwear Mm -hmm. and putting it in his, like, bed. And I just I, I kept having the image of like Pennywise like tiptoeing around the house with her underwear and like sliding underneath the mattress. Like, there's nothing scary. That's way too procedural for me. I like the idea that he just has the knife or he, like there's something else there. But I don't like the fact that that he was possibly framed with evidence <laughs> that Pennywise framed Pennywise him. Well, I actually you know, like I don't know. Lair. I didn't yeah. even think of it. I thought that he just <laughs> actually had this. No, because they say that it says that that might that might have been that might have arrived at that point for some oh. reason. Yeah, they kind of suggest like it was he was frowned. Yeah. yeah, I wrote that in my notes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. 
And um, yeah, I, I've got one of the, the two of you that, said so, too but. about my other ministry, but that's really, yeah. I really do like the section a lot. I think it moves really well. And I, I think that everything that happens, you know, builds momentum and, and gets us to where we need to go. Yeah. Those were my only things. Any yeah. others? No, I, no. I, yeah, I didn't have it specifically written down for this section, but we, we, we nailed some of it on the head for sure. Now that we've uh, been through that, it's time to get even more miserable, but in a good way, because we're going to the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Ooh, creepy. Let's get scared, everybody. I can't wait to talk about this uh, Where do we want to start? What do you guys got? I got something here. Bring okay. it on. This, let's just kick it off with a bang. This, I, I somehow always forget this part of the story, even though I've read it a couple times. <laughs> Thinking you're do. I think uh, much like the losers forget 27 years later. <laughs> Mike <laughs> is relaying a tale of one of the kids who've died recently. <clears throat> His mother was hanging clothes in the backyard. She heard, she heard sounds of a struggle, heard her son screaming. She ran as fast as she could. As she went up the stairs, she says she heard the sound of the toilet flushing repeatedly. That, and someone laughing. She said it didn't sound human. The child's skull had been crushed. The idea that Pennywise is up there just with a little baby or yeah. a little toddler and yeah. just drowning it and laughing. And, and having the adult actually hear that. So spooky. That is horrifying. Um, and that goes beyond like there's nothing wacky about that. You no, know what I mean? There's nothing, no, it's just not at yeah, all. There's, there's nothing there to be designed. Like I don't think that he didn't intend for the mother to hear him laughing. It's Which just is malevolence. Interesting because you know mostly it was kids, and they always keep talking about it's mostly affecting children and like. But adults, you would there's like these little one offs throughout the story so far that I've heard of like adults hearing mm-hmm. or seeing things, but because we're adults, we don't really we just like brush it off. And immediately, probably in the beginning, she's like not thinking and then you hear your child screaming and what do you, how do you explain that like you yeah. can't that's the thing yeah you're as an adult i think you've got so much reason that you can't you have to reason it away like think about things this that don't make sense too. just can't be real like they had to have gone down for that murder that death like the the way that the baby is killed the parents had to have been like fingered for this thing right i don't yeah, remember don't what the outcome is it. yeah Did they, they don't talk go about into it, it. Yeah. yeah, like, but but they probably were. I mean, yeah. like, like that, well, it's that, kind of like that's like a, thing. that's a murder. Yeah, the dad exactly. Was, yeah, the dad was, yeah. yeah, which is even more awful. Um, the the curse section has a lot of stuff that's very scary. Mm-hmm. The thing that really got me, and the thing is, uh, it almost was undercut a little bit because it ended up being called out. But the part that really got me at first, because what really scares me, and you guys talked about the son of previous up, but is that Pennywise calls himself Bob Gray. Mm. Yeah. And I find that very scary for it's some reason. <laughs> because it's yeah. so normal. I know. But why did they keep referencing that name? Like, is that I name particular to see? I mean, I, I haven't like, read the book in so long, so I don't know if it comes. And I'm, I'm, I've got about 200 pages left, so yeah. maybe something comes up. But I don't I think, think so. I don't think so. Yeah, and I, I think it's more so just there's something kind of weird and uncanny about it, mm. especially because we know this is not. A, a human we know mm. it's a it's it's a it's an entity it's a it's a being and it's like it's that name is so innocuous and so unassuming that there's just something eerie about it well because and, think about this pennywise a dancing clown is, is a nickname right or it's, yeah. a, it's a it's something a character he's taken on 
Bob Gray is also a nickname of Robert Gray. So it's yeah. even like that weird level on top of that. Like if he if he was just kept going by Robert Gray, maybe maybe it would be unsettling, but it's it's much more unsettling to just go by Bob, Bob Gray. Gray. I mean, maybe it's like maybe Pennywise the Dancing Clown is a persona he stole from somebody mm. like a long time ago, and that person's name was Bob Gray. That it just it I love the ambiguity of it because it's very spooky to me. And that's like the kind of thing when I'm reading it in bed at night, that's the kind of stuff that really like makes me shiver. Yeah. So so in 578 in my edition, what is this edition? It's not mine. It's the Scribner edition. It's the one with the big smiling. Uh, I read it on my Kindle, which yeah. has the same page numbers, mm. but I have Michael's here. Uh, so page 578. Well, that's when she explains it. But earlier, Bev is going through and she finds the dresser, a, mm. an old dresser that has RG carved into it. Mm. And what I love mm. is we first see that and I immediately thought Robert, Robert Gray. Gray. Yeah. Immediately. Because that is something that is so burned in my head. And then I love that she kind of just bypasses it. And then later when Kirsch is kind of, you know, uh, collapsing in her way. Uh, she's like, very old, Mrs. Kirsch reminisced over her empty cup, looking slyly at Beverly from her yellowed eyes. Her snaggle teeth showed in that repulsive, almost leering grin. From home with me it came. The RG carved into it, you noticed? Uh, and she goes, my father, she said, pronouncing it fodder. And Beverly saw that her dress had also changed. It had become a scabrous, peeling black. The cameo was a skull. Its jaw hung in a diseased gape. His name was Robert Gray, better known as Bob Gray, better known as Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Although that was not his name either. But he did love his joke, my fodder. And just the idea of my fodder is very mm-hmm. creepy. Like this Irish yeah. kind of Yeah, and it's like, but just the way, and I felt like the um, the miniseries actually captured this pretty well but it's even better in the book is just the way this woman starts collapsing so much right before Beverly's eyes because they go into the whole idea of Hansel and Gretel and the the witch and the candy house and also it's like and this is one where the language almost borders on wacky horror, but it's it's it it's works. Because, yes, yeah. Because it's so it's because it's happening so fast. You know what I mean? Like, and because the things that this woman is saying, um, they're not silly so much as they are manic, mm-hmm. and like uh, they're just terrifying because you you feel like you're in the presence of somebody who is completely unhinged from reality. Well, because then she starts to shout at her. Um, she yes. says, "Tell your friends I'm the last of a dying race, the only survivor of a dying planet. I've come to rape all the women, rape all the men." It's like, just so I wrote ugh, that down racing. too because um and I don't know if we should talk about it here or maybe maybe save it for later but just the whole idea of what is Pennywise is Pennywise an alien because mm. he makes references like that that he is an alien yeah. like in a couple different times and that's something I find very interesting well part four will definitely yeah so even then sure. it's like as I finished part four it's like it's not like it's guaranteed exactly that the ambiguity it, is it still came there. from space you know yeah. <laughs> and that's something that I find very very compelling mm. in this book yeah. but then I had another line from here that just really creeped me out it Remind me of Tommy Knockers, which I'm very excited for those episodes. We gotta be on that. As much as I've read that book twice, it's garbage, but I gotta read it again. I love Tommy. Uh, so, but there was a bit where um, the cups she saw were white bark that had been carefully looped with blue dyed frosting. The pictures of Jesus and John Kennedy were creations of nearly transparent spun sugar. And as she looked at them, Jesus stuck out his tongue, and Kennedy dropped a stinky wink. I would usually use the phrase stinky wink and pound cake, but mm-hmm. in this context, it yeah, freaked yeah, it me works. out. Yeah. And just the idea of Jesus sticking his tongue out, that whole idea of like corrupting sort of religious uh, imagery is something he does in Tommyknockers too. Mm-hmm. And the Becca Paulson short story that ended up being in Tommyknockers. Yeah. Um, it's a very eerie thing for me. I mean, maybe that's because I come from a religious background, but it is, uh, it's a, you know, that whole idea of corrupting the image of Jesus is something that to me is, uh, is, uh, very demonic I and agree. creepy. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, yeah. love the curse section. All yes. of it is scary, but those were my standouts. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, for me, I'm going to tail end off your Kirsch stuff. The, that whole section just freaks me out, and I thought they did a really good job with that in the miniseries. Um, but going back, uh, I really think the fortune cookie sequence in the book is is pretty disturbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it too. Um, it's, it's that good. still really creeps me out. Um, it seems just, like they're going to try this again in the new adaptation. I wonder if they're going to be able to pull it off now. Yeah, they're going to CGI uh, it or something like well, that. Well, you know, something that something that was more scary in this version than in the miniseries is the eye. A fortune cookie that has the eye in it. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. for me, because it was the eye that, you know, young Eddie punches. It, you know, that it was like they were they were slowly remembering the, those things that scared them and they mm-hmm. were coming out in the cookies, like the beast, like mm-hmm. the, the the spidery thing that is basically like it. Um, or just the fact that it's already like invading their minds again. Yeah. Uh, as, soon as, they, as soon as they're there, you know. I mean, yeah. now they're all together. They're all seeing this. Yeah. Um, Two things, two scenes I didn't think necessarily worked, but I thought there there were things in it that did was when Ben sees Dracula, but it's not the stage or screen Dracula. It's like true blue vampire. I, I actually like that. I, I, think, I did think that was scary with the razor sharp mm-hmm. teeth. Like, he always makes it a point to say like the werewolves or the mummies or the Draculas. Like this is not what you think of. Mm-hmm. Like this is not Bela Lugosi or like, you know, launch Angel. It's right. like, this is the worst thing you can imagine. This oh, the razor know. stuff is... Yeah. Is horrifying. It bites yeah. off yeah. its own tongue, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Just, it like, bites into its gums. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. oh. and that's what it reminds me of uh, of mm-hmm. the the vampire from the television version of Salem's Lot. Yes. Well, yeah. we'll get to that in a second yeah, too. Yeah. Some... And then, um, and then the other one was was actually when Belch Huggins crawls over the fence. That just that moment. Oh, I agree. I yeah, that because that's really before it gets to like yeah. we're running yeah. into yeah. people yeah. or all goes. Yeah. Um, did you have anything? You actually all just took uh, most of my. I mean, like the cursing. I mean, there's so many parts of it that I could. No, I wanted to read that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. but (laughs) I'm not going to go into the whole section. (laughs) Just reread it. But um, no, I feel like you guys got most of what I wanted to talk about in my for me. I've got I've got a few more. Some we already touched upon, but it's the moment when, like we talked about this earlier, when Ben and the librarian are talking. Just a pleasant conversation. All Mm -hmm. of a sudden, Ben, would you come up here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, was that? I love what? that. Is that PA just, system? Ben, can you come up here? And it's just it upstairs. And then starts screaming at him after that. That really caught me off guard. Um, Dan is probably screaming right now. We've got to talk about the Jaws part. Oh, the shark. Yeah. yeah. The shark in the canal. Um, who was that, though, who was speaking? It's, uh, oh, I, I've got, I've got it's, um, it's, guess who, guess who, guess who uh, Bill hears the story from? Tommy Vicananza, Tommy Vicananza, the skateboarding kid. <laughs> so I wouldn't trust the thing this kid says, first of all. But if he's telling the truth, I'll tell it right now. Um, is, uh, Tommy's telling a story about this kid who claims to have encountered it. He says, he thinks he saw that shark in the canal. He was up there by himself in Bassey Park a couple of weeks ago, and he said he saw this fin. He said it was eight or nine feet tall. Just a fin was that tall. You get me? He goes, that's what killed Johnny and the other kids. It was Jaws. I know because I saw it. So I go, that canal's so polluted, nothing could live in it, not even a minnow. You think you saw Jaws in there? You got toys in the attic, Tommy. Tommy <laughs> says it reared right out of the water like it did at the end of that movie and tried to bite him, and he just got back in time. Pretty funny, huh, mister? And I think the reason is, like, even though the shark in Jaws obviously looks fake, it still freaks me out, mm-hmm. you know? So and so just the idea of, as a kid, I was always afraid of that shark. Oh, and, yeah. And to just be walking about where you would never expect to see it and have it pop up like that. Well, you know, I that don't, bothers yeah, me. It scares me. Yeah. 
I don't think I'd ever seen like a shark before like, or a live shark. Yeah. So when I saw that movie that I didn't, I couldn't, I wasn't thinking it was like fake. It mm-hmm. didn't look fake to me because I just, I didn't, I don't know if a shark threw its body on the <laughs> the boat. I don't know. Maybe that would be what it looked like or whatever, yeah. you know? But yeah, that is a, that's a creepy moment. And the last thing I have is one of the pyromaniacs at Juniper Hill. It, mm-hmm. uh, King writes, whipping his old dingus so hard that it started to bleed through his fingers, shrieking, try to set the yeah. night on fire. That bothered me. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's dingus. Yeah. It's hard. Dingus. I think I blocked that one out. <laughs> uh, yikes. Uh, okay, so that's all I've got. Have the cemetery gates closed? The, uh, the, the funeral's over. Two, two more things. Ooh. Uh, just real quick. Bowers and the Ghost Moon creeps me out. Love it. Yeah. Still creepy. Mm. And then even though I don't think the Doberman <laughs> uh, clown works... I did think it was creepy because this is something that that was not in the other versions was when um, like Vix all stitched together when he crawls out. You know, I've got that too. Yeah. But then, but then right before he kills the guard, he yells out, it's time for the circus. And that's just, that really creeped me out. See that, that to me, that's like, I just kill him. Like why do you have to throw the, well, it just, I mean, because even as that guy who doesn't know who Pennywise is to yell something like that out as you're coming at, it just, it was so it's off-putting yeah. weird. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. Yeah. If I was the guard, yeah. I, w- I wouldn't have laughed. I would have been freaked out. Yeah, <laughs> no. Yeah. But yeah, that, that is time for the circus just really kind of made me, because it's something he's not done ever before. Do you know what I mean? He just well, kills. Let me ask you everybody's question. What's scarier, Clown clown Doberman or <laughs> Gary Doberman writing it too? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the nun too is Gary Doberman. I, and then the other thing I had written down was just um, Keen's description of Pennywise at the at the shooting at the yes. end. Yes, love it. And uh, we already talked about it a little bit, but it's just kind of creepy. Just the way he says, like, he wasn't wearing a clown suit or nothing like that. He was dressed in a pair of farmer's bibballs and a cotton shirt underneath, but his face was covered with that white grease paint they use, and he had a big red clown smile painted on and had these tufts of fake hair. Yeah, you know, orange, sort of comical. And that's just really creepy, you know, like the idea that he's dressed Man. a little. Yeah, just like he's wearing bibballs and everything, but he's still got all that on. It's just creepy. Um, anything else? I think the sun is um, rising. I think we're gonna we're dropping the the dirt on the on the casket. Yeah, the sun is rising. We're gonna uh, follow that bright shining beacon in the sky, which we like to call the word processor of the gods. And we're gonna make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Here we are. Here we are. I've got my I've got my typewriter out. And I'm ready to look at what I've written. I love just these beginnings of the sections where I'm like, how do we ease in here? And I like, either because I like like half the battle is just getting to the transition. Yep. And it's coming out of the transition. Out of the coming transition is what I usually don't think about. So I usually do something like, ooh, here we are. <laughs> Spooky. It's, it's usually not good. Um, I'll start. I have one on page 542 uh, with Ben. Um, This was just some good writing, I thought. I thought it was just really lovely. Um, So now standing here in the fading drizzle in front of a trustworthy hardware store that had been a pawn shop in 1958. Freddy Brothers, Ben recalled, the double windows always full of pistols and rifles and straight razors and guitars hung up by their necks like exotic animals. It occurred to him that the kids were better at almost dying than they were at 
and, and they were also better at incorporating the inexplicable into their lives. They believed implicitly in the invisible world. Miracles, both bright and dark, were to be taken into consideration. Oh, yes, most certainly. But they by no means uh, stopped the world. A sudden upheaval of beauty or terror at 10 did not preclude an extra cheese dog or two for lunch at noon. But when you grew up, all that changed. You no longer lay awake in your bed. Sure, something was crouching in the closet or scratching at the window. But when something did happen, something beyond rational explanation, the circuits over loaded. The accents and dendrites got hot. You started to jitter and jive. You started to shake, rattle, and roll. Your imagination started to hop and bop and do the funky chicken all over your nerves. You couldn't just incorporate what had happened into your life experience. It didn't digest. Your mind kept coming back to it, pawing it lightly like a kitten with a ball of string. Until eventually, of course, you either went crazy or got to a place where it was impossible for you to function. And if that happens, Ben thought, it's got me. Us. Cold. So I just like that section because I feel like it kind of sums up the book in a way. It sums up sort of, you know, this is how we overcome Pennywise is we, you know, we don't fall into the traps of adults, which is that we, you know, let our imaginations go away and we become overwhelmed by the things that stretch, you know, reality. Mm-hmm. So just very interesting. Uh, nice little bit of writing. There. I agree. I, mine is also uh, probably from that same era, that same section with Ben um, at the library. I read this the section when it was probably about 95 degrees here in Chicago at one point. <laughs> and the joke in Chicago is when it's the wintertime, you always forget about how hot it gets. And when it's the summertime, you always forget about how cold it gets. So reading this section about um, Ben looking at the the library, and there's a, the, the, that, that tunnel that connects the, ch- the children's like that, section yeah. to the adult, and he says, um, it was somehow magical, magical in a good way that he had been too young to account for with such mundane things as electric power and oil heat. The magic was that glowing cylinder of light and life connecting these two dark buildings like a lifeline. The magic was in watching people walk through it across the dark snowfield, untouched by either the dark or the cold. It made them lovely and godlike. And, you know, because here in Chicago, especially, it gets so dark, but then sometimes the mood will reflect off the snow and people just seem, and the lights just seem brighter. I don't know. I got got almost nostalgic for the winter. I'm going to regret that that in a couple months. I had that written down too, that same. (laughs) That was one of mine. That same one. What else do you guys got? I, I mean, we've already we already covered some of them. A lot of mine was the curse chapter, but you um, highlighted those moments really well. Oh yeah. Uh, and there was another section. I mean, the three things was that that first chapter that Aisha read about the the how the town loved Pennywise. Yeah, I had the two year old boy section was really um, just uncomfortable for me, and then yeah, the curse stuff. So you guys already nailed it. Um, I also had on page 599, this is in the midst of the Bunyan stuff. I just thought it was kind of a cool piece of writing. Uh, uh, Richie's looking at the Bunyan statue. He says, its eyes were widening, widening. And in those black pupils, each as big of a saw, each as big as a softball, Richie saw the mad darkness that must exist over the rim of the universe. He saw a shitty happiness that he felt would drive him insane. Mm -hmm. In that moment, he understood it could do any of these things and more. I just love the phrase shitty happiness. (laughs) I've used that once or twice in my life. <laughs> uh, I've got I've got one more, and this is something that we've actually been teasing a lot about. Like, even though Richie is the way he is, he's still likable. Yeah, I really love this, and I kind of connected to some of this. Um, as a kid, he had been a goof off, a sometimes vulgar, sometimes amusing comedian, because it was one way to get along without getting killed by kids like Henry Bowers or going absolutely Looney Tunes with boredom and loneliness. He realized now that a lot of the problem had been his own mind, which was usually moving at a speed 10 or 20 times that of his classmates. They had thought him strange, weird, or even suicidal, depending on the escape in question. But maybe it had been a simple case of mental overdrive. 
if anything about being in constant mental overdrive was simple. I thought that was a really yeah, good take on, yeah. on not just Richie, but just, you know, the, the class clown and, and why that class clown might be, be the way he is. Yeah. I like that a lot. Do you guys have any more? Because I got I, one more. I've got two. Okay, bring it. We yeah. kind of talked about some of the other ones that I wanted to do, but um, one of them is when they were talking about Stan, or Bill kind of reflects about who Stan is. Mm. And in yeah. the first edition, it's uh, like four ninety nine to five hundred, and he. I'm gonna kind of like skip a little bit. Yeah. So he starts with he was Stan was he was an ordered person, the kind of person who has to have his books divided up into fiction and nonfiction on his shelves, and then wants to have each section in alphabetical order. I can remember something he said once. I don't remember where we were or what we were doing, at least not yet, but I think it was toward the end of things. He said he could stand to be scared, but he hated being dirty. That seemed to me the essence of Stan. Maybe it was just too much when Mike called. Mm. He saw his choices as being only two, stay alive and get dirty or die clean. Maybe people really don't change as much as we think. Maybe they just maybe they just stiffen up. Mm. I like that a lot. You know, because yeah. that reminds me of you know when we were kids, we just think that you know, just because you're getting older means you're growing up. But I learned as an adult, you don't necessarily no. grow mm. up. Well, you can hide it better, you know. Yeah, yeah. And fears. before we move on to your next one, bring back the stand thing. I really like that where Bev says. That she thought maybe that's why Stan killed himself, mm-hmm. that he thought that they lost the magic that mm. they needed to defeat it. Yeah. And he yeah. knew he was the only one that knew that, and that's why he did it. And that, I thought that too was much. really scary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the only other one was like really quick. It just kind of stuck with me, and maybe this is like kind of because of like this is what Americans were like in the 1980s. Um, it's when Mike is kind of going over how, like how successful they all are. Yeah. Um, and he says, or um, he asks like how much they put on their tax returns or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And he says, they glanced around at each other almost furtively, embarrassed as Americans always seem to be, by the raw fact of their own success, as if cash were hard-cooked eggs and affluence the farts that inevitably <laughs> follow an overdose of the same. I like that. <laughs> it stuck with me. And I was like, huh, because most Americans I know are like, oh, I make all this money. This is what I do. But that's more of like kind of what we see nowadays. So I'm curious. And when I think about it, yeah, when Americans were first like kind of doing that American dream life, there was kind of that little bit of humbleness of like, yeah, I make money. I don't, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Instagram selfies and everything else. Before all that. Look how, look at me and my plane. Um, I love this section from the Bowers section, um, if only because it offers up such a vulnerable portrait of of kind of old, uh, shattered Henry Bowers. Um, page 625. He lay on his side, staring at his nightlight intently. Donald Duck had burned out. He had been replaced by Mickey and Minnie Mouse dancing a polka. They had been replaced with the green glowing face of Oscar the Grouch from Sesame Street. And late last year, Oscar had been replaced by the face of Fozzie Bear. Henry had measured out the years of, inc- of his incarceration with burned out nightlights instead of coffee spoons. Just that little section there, because yeah. that's like... That whole idea of him being so mentally stunted, you know, this idea, I guess there's always been something. I remember when I was a kid being in kind of a very scary part of Detroit um, and uh, walking around and it was, you know, there was a lot. It was a very not healthy part of Detroit. And there was a a mural of like the Rugrats characters, (laughs) but it was it was really poorly done. But it took up a whole wall and they didn't look like the Rugrats characters at all. But that's what they were supposed to be. And I remember it just struck me as very um, 
I don't know, out of place and strange and uncanny. And this just reminds me, it's like that whole idea of um, the innocent, um, sort of the the broken innocence being juxtaposed against, you know, kind of a certain violence or corruption uh, was, I just found it very striking. So Yeah, that was actually one of my favorite parts. Too, yeah, I love lights. that. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and also I had a lot of, you know, those kind of nightlights when I was young. And, uh, oh, I thought I, you were yeah. say you have them now. Uh, well, I had them. I probably, had an Oscar the Grouch nightlight. I had. I, I I will here admit that I probably had them longer than I probably should have. Nineteen twenty. Uh, mm. I still have them. Okay. Well, I'm thinking about getting. <laughs> well, it's good you're here. Uh, I'm definitely gonna look into getting a Pennywise nightlight. <laughs> oh Jesus! Yeah. So that when I, I head to the bathroom there. at two a.m., uh, I can be greeted by Bob Gray. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe instead of prowling the children's section at Barnes and Noble, so I'll just get a nightlight of Pennywise oh, next time for a gift. <laughs> Has the word processor run out of paper? I think uh, we're going to be moving on to computers. Well we've, been, <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been working hard on this word processor. We've earned ourselves a treat, and that treat is a nice slice of pound cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like now, him. Now, Randall, Mom. you said you have a couple because I came up really short. There was one... I mean, I couldn't even do it. That that whole sequence where Kirsch is yelling at Bev is just it's well. That's not funny. That's just what I'm like, saying. Yeah, it's yeah, disgusting. Yeah. But I I did I didn't want to. I couldn't even. I've got read. one. So I'm so excited. I dropped my pen. Bring it on. <laughs> it might be similar to mine, but Young Ben. All right. Okay. I, do you want to read it? All I had to say was Young Ben. <laughs> this is upon seeing a probably like another fifth grader's underwear for the first time. I high think. school girl. Oh, I was a high school. Oh, it was a high school, school girl. He was older. Was, she was older. <clears throat> he could remember sitting at a table in the children's library and thinking of an unexpected view for perhaps as long as 20 minutes, his cheeks and forehead hot, a book about the history of trains opened and read before him, his penis, a hard little branch in his <laughs> pants, a branch that had sunk its roots oh, all the way up into oh, his belly. No. Never look at trees the same. Is that the second time like roots has been used in a sexual way? That wasn't roots used earlier on in the um uh, in this? It, no it what was it, it what was the expression? It wasn't roots one of or root one wasn't of the root? Bully, yeah one of the bullies or, or Henry says nobody suggests that I suck the root. Yeah mm. root so root has been used multiple times in it. Okay. As a sexual <laughs> okay. you get assaulted um, by a tree literally right out of the gate i had one and it's not a big deal but it just kind of like i thought it was kind of a a lovely section and then it ends with kind of a a moment where i was like like, and so uh it's it's bill waking up you know in the hotel and it says the telephone is ringing bringing him up and out of the sleep too deep too deep for dreams he groped for it without opening his eyes without coming more than halfway awake it had stopped ringing uh just then Uh, He would have slipped back down into sleep without a hitch. He would have done it as simply and easily as he had once slipped down the snow-covered hills in McCarran Park on his flexible flyer. You ran with the sled, threw yourself onto it, and down you went, seemingly at the seat of speed of sound. You couldn't do that as a grown-up. It racked the hell out of your balls. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, I'm enjoying this section. I'm just like... It is like an America's Funniest Home Video (laughs) Why do you got to add that at the end? And then later, this is just a moment that made me kind of go, Mike. Like, because Mike was talking. (laughs) Michael. And he goes, the first of the new murders, if you'll allow me that rather, rather grisly conceit, began on the Main Street Bridge and ended underneath it. The victim was a gay and rather childlike man named Adrian Mellon. He had a bad case of asthma. (laughs) 
But it was just rather <laughs> childlike. Huh. Like we met Adrian Mellon earlier yeah. in the book, and I wouldn't describe I wouldn't, it as childlike. No, I wouldn't describe and it very much feels slightly homophobic yeah, <laughs> to say yeah. that. Right. And you know what? It was 1985. It was a small town dairy. They didn't know I how just, to talk about it. I guess, yeah, I guess I not. just had that moment where I was like, Mike, like you didn't need to add that. You're talking about somebody Mike. who was brutally murdered. You're like, I hope you die. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, my last one, and I'm surprised you guys didn't write this down because this is Ben oogling like a 15 year old girl. This like, probably would be like, I, I, probably, it, I probably read this and thought somebody else will do that. it. I yeah. feel like it leads to what it could have are. led to mine. Okay, it well, must have led to he mine. He goes for one thing, it proved he was still an adult, and the fact that the girl was clearly brawless under her thin western oh, style yeah, shirt yeah, yeah. was also more relief than turn on. This girl is underage, by the yes. way. <laughs> if proof that this was 1985 and not 1958 was needed, the clearly limbed points of her nipples against the cotton of her shirt was it. <laughs> I chose to just, just ignore that whole section. It was just like, yeah. it's just like yeah. literally like Ben, handsome. It's like Ben licking his lips. Handsome yeah. late 30s yeah. guy licking his lips. Randall, I'm missing these things because just like the people of, of Derry have just kind of lived in this for so long, they uh-huh. start just kind of accepting and, and <laughs> We've lived in we've lived in this 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 section of pound cake over or a course of I don't know can't, I don't know how many books and now I've just I've just kind of like can't I'm not, I'm not even seeing it anymore. I am a pound cake warrior. I am committed to finding as many slices of pound cake as I can. I just kind of remember saying, "Oh Ben, <laughs> oh Ben." No, it's like I am. Randall so, hears the call of Eddie Van Halen's I'm so, guitar. I hear the first notes of it every time I stumble across some pound cake, and I I. I uh, highlight it in my Kindle and I put it in my little document immediately. So, uh, okay, that's all the pound cake I have. That's all I've got, too. Are you guys full? Yeah. That's all I got. Are we full? I had a big dinner. I indulged too much. Now that uh, that we're all bloated, uh, shall we wander into a little place we like to call King's Dominion? There's another world out there. I know there is. Welcome to King's Dominion. I like how we could only enter if we're blown. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody have a big tummy? Um, it's, uh, I only have one here, but. Oh, I'm, I got a lot. This is, see, where I'm good at, I'm good at pound cake. I uh. usually tend to miss a lot of the Dominions, and that's where I rely on the Gerber brothers. Yeah. Often. Well, we can go yeah, a little circle if you want to, or back and forth, whatever you want. Well, I'll just jump on the one. I only have one, so okay. I'll just jump on it. Um, let me bring it up here. Page 508 in Scribner. He's probably going to read the one, only one, because I'm not as good as you guys. Oh, so I'm I not. Would not this is everything. like my weak point on the pod, too. Okay. I'm bad at noticing these. Um, so, page 508. Uh, it can't be Beverly Cried. I would have read about it in the paper, seen mm-hmm. it on the news, when that crazy cop killed all those women yep. in Castle Rock, mm-hmm. Maine, and those children that were murdered in Atlanta. Yeah, uh, I got that. Yeah, that's so that's mine. a pretty blatant, yeah. pretty blatant one yeah. there. And uh, I felt pretty proud of myself for recognizing. I was like, oh, yeah. Well, that's I the have- only one I have. So, <laughs> and then, but you guys have more. Yeah. And I hope you have some room for three sevens. I've, I've got one. Okay, oh, okay, that's good. That's enough. But you want to go first, Mac? Uh, well, well, for King's Dominion, I yeah. the um, the next one I have uh, page five fifteen in the Scribner edition. Uh, they mention the town of Haven. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of I feel there's like a lot there's of a Haven, Haven mentions. Yeah. Like yeah. I think Richie or Ben has an aunt there. Yeah, one of the murder suspects um, was killing deer in, in Haven as well. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. What, what um, are you I have another one. There's actually so something cool. meta here more than anything else. Yeah, and I have... Yeah. King writes, um, this is Bill's take on on Ben when he's mid-story about losing weight and everything. Mm-hmm. 
Bill said, all that sounded wonderful, Ben, but the writer in me wonders if any kid ever really talked like that. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I, yeah. Because, you know, sometimes he, he, we've, we talked about, like, Danny Torrance sounding like he was about 15 or 16 when he's five. Oh, or yeah, yeah. It's I thought weirdest, that was a fun little commentary. Weird, weirdly written character, yeah. Um, something else, Mac? Yeah. On like page 598. <laughs> boom, boom. Um, Pennywise says... Um, before removing the moat from thy neighbor's eye, mm. attend the beam in thine mm-hmm. own. Ah. The clown intoned. And the, I have that too. A little uh, beam uh, within the Bible. And then the only other thing that I had that I thought was a fun little room 237 was that at one point they mentioned the Mouseketeers, and one of them is Jimmy Dodd. Ah. ah probably related to the old Frankie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've got some. I think I'm actually pretty proud of myself. Yeah? Let's hear it. Let's do this. Well, we'll be the judge okay. of that. <laughs> um, by the sound of your applause, I will know if I if I was a if I was a good boy, Sorry. if I was bloated enough to enter the king's dominion. Okay, first, so the vampire Ben sees is described as such: Bela Lugosi or Christopher Lee or Franklin Jello or Francis Lederer or Reggie Nalder. Reggie Nalder played Barlow in the Salem's Lot miniseries. Oh, very nice. Thank Did you very much. That. Bev's old house in Derry is one two seven Lower Main Street. Rearrange the numbers. Um, 217. 237. Yeah, I know, but... I'm kidding. (laughs) Son of a bitch. Son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) That was a a Kubrickian... A little applause, a little applause. Yeah, Randall's giving a little golf clap over here. Um, (laughs) This this might be my PhD resistance. All right, uh, here we go. Do you know who else is living in Bev's old building, the other floors? On the third floor is Starkweather, and King was obsessed with the killer Charles Starkweather. On the second floor, Burke, a family member of Matt Burke's from Salem's Lot, probably. Oh, God. I thought you were going to go aliens. I'll give you the first one. All right. (laughs) And of course, thank you very much. And John, we talked about the one of the jerk security guards is Coons. That's all I got. That's all I got. Yeah. Uh, Ran out of you. Well... Um, speaking oh, of King's Dominion, um, there are some things that we glean along the beam. Uh, Let's and hear it. this beam is uh, the path of uh, matter and the turtle. Uh, I'll go first, Justin. I've got some too. Okay, page 495. Richie asks Bill how long he's been turtle waxing his head. Mm. Hey, oh, yep, I got that. Um, I've got uh, when the word chud first comes to Ben, at least mm-hmm. comes back to him. He looked down at the sidewalk and for a moment he saw the shape of a turtle chalk there and the world seemed to swim before his eyes. Oh. That's it. <laughs> yeah, right. 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 Right after that, he says he shut them tightly and when he opened them, saw it was not a turtle, only a hopscotch grid half erased by light rain chud. Chud, 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 chud. Um, that's all. <laughs> I was like, and go on. I am very, I am not on the episode where on the Chud episodes. So, but I'm still reading because I'm very, very interested in revisiting that stuff because yeah. I feel like I haven't in so long. You know? Same here. I, I mean, I'm, I'm actually on the last two episodes, but I, I would have read the whole thing anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I finished the book a while ago and I can't wait to get to chapter five and talk about all that stuff. It's really interesting. Part five. Part five. I haven't gotten to that part yet, but I'm excited. Because this is your first time, Asia, and this is your first time, Mac. Yeah. Yes, this is my first time reading Exciting. the book. Yeah. So, but next week we've got not part five, but part four, which is July of 1958. Man. Some big stuff 
happens. And don't worry, mm. I've got some awesome baseball connections to talk about in part four for all of you big This Week in Baseball fans. So, uh, Well, you'll get your own section for you that. You got that goddamn right. <laughs> <laughs> you'll just be talking to yourself. <laughs> Everybody will be like, can we leave the room while you're talking about the Red Sox? We've got some great Bowers. we got some great Eddie, young Eddie. gets kind of It's kind of his, I feel like it's kind of like his part. Like uh, I love his part. It's great. Yes. It's so good. And then uh, we get uh, some Patrick Hockstetter. Yes, we it's do. Very spooky, mm. and uh, I'm just finishing up that section. Oh wait, no, I just I finished it uh, last week, so I'm I'm well into Chud now, and it's very exciting. So, uh, so yeah, please tune in next week, and if you haven't listened to our other episodes yet for some reason, please go back and do that. And while you're waiting, why not go back and listen to our old episodes, like Throwing. Thinner, which Aisha was on previously, Ooh. and um, uh, Roadwork. And Roadwork <laughs> that I was on, unfortunately, yeah. Mac was on, but it. <laughs> wasn't very good. <laughs> and, um, but you can listen to the episode because I think we make some good points about why it's bad. And well, that's so, the great thing about this podcast is that you can listen to any of our book episodes at any time. You know, it's true. Because doesn't, it doesn't really date. Let me just say this: you probably haven't listened to our our winner. What is that? Uh, the last one or the breathing method episode? Uh, we know that you probably haven't listened but to it. But you should. But you should. It's just me, Mac, and Justin. And you know what? We had a great time. And we tell some spooky stories at the end ourselves. <laughs> we so. can listen to it together, you and I. There you go. I always tell people to listen to that episode because yeah. I'm like, if there's one you haven't listened to, it's probably <laughs> the one episode we devoted to the, the story in different seasons that nobody reads. And, and it's funny about that is, once again, we put just as much effort into that as did. any of the other ones. We totally we did. We do. Um, so please listen to those. Please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use. Uh, to listen to us. Some people get mad. We talk about Money Money Boston sometimes. They leave us bad reviews. So we need your help to overcome their oh, badness. Wow. <laughs> Please leave us a review. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. And uh, also, um, I don't know, just like stick around. Keep being supportive because we need you. We need you, listeners. You make us whole. In the meantime, long, long days and pleasant nights. Goodbye. made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast congratulations if you like our programming consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts such as creepy horror queers the boo crew scp archives nightlight margaret's garden and more <laughs> <laughs>